Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. To learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations' websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations' names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. Hello and welcome to the Bible Way. What? My hey, name's Jeannie, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm Jeannie, and I'm sitting down here with Pastor Rowan from C3 Camden, Picton, and Thoreau. And today we are recording on Zoom. We are. It's our first yeah. attempt at this. Yes. You Camden and Picton people, this is what I'm going to be doing probably when I'm recording with you guys. So we're doing a test run, but not because we intended to. Hey, Jeannie. No, that's right. We've gone full COVID, back to COVID in this house, especially, but online via Zoom. So that's why we're doing it this way. And we've had some sound issues on the last recording. So we're actually re-recording uh, the uh, body at work, right? Yes, we are. We're actually going back and going to re-record pretty much most of this and then refresh the upload. So if you're listening to this and it sounds okay, that's because you didn't hear how dreadful last week's version was. It's yeah, well, anyway, we've got, we've got all this fancy new podcasting equipment, which no one's had a chance to hear. Jeff and I have recorded a, a couple of episodes with the new equipment, and uh, it's it sounds pretty good. One of those will be out next week, I think. Um, but we were going to do that today, and then Jeannie's testing positive. So how are you feeling? The family's mm-hmm. been pretty crook for over a week now, hey? It's been a miserable week. Yeah. Miserable week. But, you know, we're at the end of it, so that's, yeah, that's good. The kids are in the, so other, kids are in the other room. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, they are. Yes. Yeah, they're yeah. in the other room. So if they get interrupted or you see little heads running back and forward or the cat running back and forth behind Jeannie, you'll know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, they're with us, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. with us, folks. True professionalism today. Hey, I was just watching a podcast that says 40% of podcasts are recorded on Zoom. So uh, hopefully we've got the audio settings as best as we can. And we haven't, we haven't got our professional microphones plugged in for this, which we, we could do, but I need more time than I've got at the moment. So we're just doing it the old-fashioned basic Zoom, yeah. Way, aren't we? Yeah. AirPods. AirPods. Camera. And camera. Webcam. Basic webcam. Yeah. MacBooks. That's it. <laughs> but, but we're happy to be here. Yes, for sure. Yeah, 
And so we talk, the uh, topic today for our readings is a body at work. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yep. Yeah. We're continuing you, with our Holy Church series. Yeah. Can you just sum up in like two seconds what that actually means, a body at work? I think uh, the concept of the church as a body uh, is something that is quite a um, one of the metaphors that especially the Apostle Paul, I, I would say also Peter uses as well to some degree to uh, describe their understanding of what the church is supposed to be like. And um, Paul especially likens it to the human body. And so he talks about the church, the, the members of the church all working together to fulfill the purposes of God. So we are, in a sense, as Christ's body, we aren't just a body that's supposed to sit around and not do anything. We are uh, a body that is supposed to function together corporately in unity so that um, we can fulfill God's plan for humanity on the earth. We are, we've are we been talking about mini Edens. You know, the church is another metaphor. The church is a mini Eden that walks around um, on the earth or little mini Edens. And in that same way, we're a body. And so we're talking about what it means to all interact with each other, how to work in unity, how you've got a part to play, I've got a part to play. Each of us together have got our part to play and to corporately, with Christ as the head, we make up a functional body or we should make up a functional body. <laughs> that was a good answer, but it was a lot longer than two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> true, true that. Yep, good point. Yeah. So what, um, am I supposed to be looking for that when I'm reading these verses or these chapters? Yeah, yeah, looking I think so. Yeah. Look, look, in, look for uh, those, the scriptures that will, will have that in mind. Yep, definitely. I think that's a good way to think about it. Okay, so that makes sense to me when I started reading Psalm 133 and I'll just jump straight in and I'll ask Great. questions on that. Yeah, so you're looking at a body at work. So a, a am I correct in thinking that a psalm of ascent is when a group of people are on their way somewhere together, up a mountain yes. towards the temple? Towards the temple, yep, that's right. They're ascending okay. up to the temple, yep. So this psalm, they're a, a collective body of people on, on their way up to the temple and, and they're singing this, is that right? That's a Yeah, yeah, I think they, they were written for that and there is a, an indication that they – sung them as they ascended to the temple, up the stairs of the temple, and they sung them as they were on the journey from wherever they were in Israel up towards Jerusalem as they headed up the hills from the from the Jordan, uh, Jordan Rift Valley. They would be singing these songs with an excitement that they were coming to God's presence, coming to his house. Okay, and this one says it's a psalm of David, so technically that they're not going to the temple, which I just asked before. Is that right? There is no temple with David? Um, no, you're right. It's the tabernacle. There is no temple with David. I've never thought about tabernacle. that. Good point. Yeah. So David yeah. wrote this. So whether or not. Wait. Yeah, that's a good point. Are whether or not serious? David wrote You've it. never thought that? No, okay, I haven't thought about that. Um, there's no. Well, I've thought about that. There's no temple with David, but I've never thought about the, any of the Psalms of Ascent being of David. Now, they, I don't know whether that means David didn't write it. See, a lot of the times they'll say things like, when they say the Psalm of David, or they'll say the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of, you know, in of Solomon, it doesn't necessarily mean Solomon wrote the Proverbs. It might mean that that was, they were written, the Proverbs were after the st structural style of Solomon. So I, I think maybe David did write this, but then they 
then they reprimanded it and seconded it for use within those psalms of ascent? That would be my best guess without doing any research. Okay. <laughs> you got okay, me there. So you haven't done any Stumped research me. for this. <laughs> not, 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 right. on, not on the fact that Psalm 133 is actually a psalm of ascent about David and there was no temple that they were ascending to. No, I haven't thought about that before. Okay. All right. Well, let me. I'm just going to read it because it's really, really short. Yeah, it's only a short so, psalm. Psalm, yeah. psalm 133. Uh, here we go. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony, for harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion, and there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Do I, that's the right psalm, isn't it? Yeah, that is the correct psalm. Yep, that's the one. Okay. The, what, um, I, what first took my interest was verse two for harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head and ran down his beard. It's very visceral, isn't it? Yes. Ran yeah. down his beard and ran took water of beard. his robe. And it remind ran down his beard and it sort of it reminds me of of uh, of Jesus in a way. That it's sort of like if you talk about the anointing is like the well, I don't know if you really do say the anointing is the power, but the spirit all yeah. going down him and, yeah, and over Jesus onto his robe, so that yeah. Oh, okay. that's that's a definite oh, that, that anointing that anointing that drizzling picture. I mean, we when we anoint with oil, we just do a little dab on the forehead because we don't want to upset anyone's hairdo. But but that wasn't how anointing was like. Take a horn, take a, a ram's horn full of oil and pour the whole thing over the top of them, upended on them. So there was that saturation. It was like baptism saturation mentality so it was a beautiful picture of the spirit you know we've talked about the holy spirit being that anointing you're exactly right saturation in god's presence yeah and and it just makes me think of the power on the robe like you know when um the woman reaches out to jesus and touches her robe and is healed yep yeah i don't know why that's what i thought yeah it'd be crazy but that's what i picked up on that resonated i suppose yeah, yeah. Well, I think, think the, one of the I'm but, thinking about the scriptures of Jesus being anointed with oil. One of them is the week before he dies, and then there's a bit of conjecture about when the other one is. But, but he, but remember, remember, Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. It actually means that. So it's a picture that the Messiah was going to be anointed by God, saturated in God, which he was at his baptism. So yeah, I think the thing that stands out here is that it's the harmony. It's like all that beautiful picture of what this anointing and saturation in God's presence is like. And David is saying here in this psalm, unity, harmony is actually like that. He's, he's drawing a parallel. You know what it's like when the priest gets absolutely saturated in oil? That's what. That's how precious unity is. Yeah. And I was getting to that because it's like if you're saturated with oil, you're saturated with the Holy Spirit, then there should be harmony within the church. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Totally. Yeah, well, and so then, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was just thinking Pastor Phil has a um, has a sermon series he did years ago about about the anointing oil, and he, he was saying how, you know, oil lubricates. You know, you put oil in an, in an engine to lubricate the engine so it runs smoothly, and he was saying how when we're saturated in the Holy Spirit, when, we, when we're anointed with oil, there's a lubrication in our relationships. It's when we're not in God's presence, when we're not saturated in his oil, that there's that you know, when an engine runs out of oil, it starts to seize up. And and if we can all stay saturated in God's presence, it makes our relationships, it makes this unity so much easier. Yeah, and um, 
I think this is really relevant for when we later on we're going to talk about Ephesians 5 and 6, the harmony that is needed within the church. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that when Peter, Paul is right. Yeah, <laughs> What's the Paul's... difference between Peter and Paul? <laughs> no, he's writing about that. Yeah, and I love here how it's, um, it describes harmony as refreshing as a Jew. Yeah. As the Jew from Mount Hermon. I've never ever thought how you can be refreshed in a group of people that when you are of one collective thought and one collective purpose. Yeah, yeah. A, a refreshing moment. Yes, yeah, a good thought. Isn't it interesting that, you know, it begs the question, what does what is harmony, what is unity, harmony, depending on which version you use, what does that look like? We've talked about this a bit. I, I don't, you, you said one thought. I think, um, I think, one thought can be a challenging concept in its own. Like, what does one thought mean? Does one thought mean we we all think the same in terms of about everything, or does it there's space for us to have different views and different perspectives on things and yet maintain unity, even though we don't we might not agree on every little finer minutia of detail? And I think that to me is really powerful. It's something that I don't see a lot of in the world, and I think we should see in the church is a, a willingness to um, to be in unity even though we might have differences hmm. well i guess my mean what i see the one thought being is uh when christ says wait a minute my covert brain's going crazy uh <laughs> <laughs> to love one another as i have loved you yep. in john that's yep. the that's the one thought that's, that's the unity right that's right we're united around jesus and our commitment to love one another the way he has loved us um selflessly yeah that's great yeah and that's a beautiful thing it's it's due on mount hermon well due on mount hermon is where it's the, the headwaters of the jordan river it's the it's the headwaters any jew on mount mount hermon is the source of all the water of life for all the people of god you know in a natural sense in talking about the jordan river that. does it yeah. flow down then does the jew collect yep. form okay yep. Yet the dew on Mount, anything falling on Mount Hermon is actually the water that's going to end up, it's the headwaters of the Jordan River. So all the water that's going to end up in the Dead Sea that's going to be irrigate all of Israel is going to come from the Mount, Mount Hermon dew and rain. Yeah, so that's oh. why it's refreshing to them. So Wait. a harmonised church then should be like the dew mm. going down through the rivers, the waters, and going totally. out to the community cultural exactly think think about it like life-giving the water there is no life in israel without the waters on from the jordan river are coming flowing down it is the source of the life in that part of the world so um you know that's why i think it's such a powerful thing because it's, it brings life well it says that at the end even life everlasting that's the last line yeah, of the does. psalm yeah so is this this is not like a mess messianic um Verse is it the chapter? I don't think so. Not not you know. Our mutual friend Fred would say you see Jesus in everything, and and you do. Um, I think you know. I think the concept is that we can only dwell together in in and through Jesus. But I think I'd be hard pressed to see it as predominantly messianic. More that we're empowered through Jesus to be able to live this way. So we're empowered by God's Spirit to be able to live this way. We can't. We can't possibly live this picture left to ourselves. This is a supernatural unity here. And we'll probably come to it in Ephesians. I think it, well, it might be in Ephesians 4. We're not doing that. But it says, uh, Paul says, 
do everything you can to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And I think the key here is our unity is not, we don't manufacture our unity. As the body of Christ, we don't manufacture our unity. Our job is to maintain the unity that we already have been entrusted with and given. God has given us unity and it's our job to maintain something. And there's a slight difference there um, in, in what that looks like. It's one's coming from Jesus. One's Christ-centered, one is human-centered. Okay. And would it be wrong of me to read verse 2, for harmony is precious as the anointing oil that I read before, and to view that as the harmony that was in the moment that the Spirit anointed Aaron, uh, there was a harmony in the moment a, a, um, of, he, of God pulling us closer to him as a people and giving us a way to become his priests again. Ah, that that's a good a, thought. Yeah, I think I like stretch? that. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that would be a valid way to look at it. And in fact, even the fact that it's mentioning a unit, um, anointing of Aaron, well, he's a, he's a type of Christ. He's the high priest. He's the type of Jesus as the high priest and Jesus is the Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah. So I think that that you actually answered the question really well there. You referred to the unity that we God's people had when the high priest was anointed as their representative and they were united uh, around him as their representative, but also around Jesus. I think that's not a stretch. I like it. Yeah. No, no. Because <laughs> we do, you're right, Jesus is often called an Aaron. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. All that he, from that little tiny chapter. See, see it? Oh, Psalm one thirty three is like what's this? Three verses, for goodness sake. Yeah, three verses. Yeah, three verses, and oh, it's a very well known psalm. I'm sure there's a lot more in it that we haven't even touched on, too. Yeah, and the yes, and ran down onto the border of his robe. And again, I'm going to bring that up that um, that you could just touch Jesus's robe and be healed. And didn't they? Um, did the apostles, some of them have that happen to them too? Um, the healing, the Holy Spirit was blowing out through them and they touched something? Yeah, a couple of things. Peter's shadow, as people walked walked by, um, Peter's shadow was cast on people, it said, and they were healed. So they were obviously gathering around in faith around him. And then there was reference to uh, cloths and things that had been in the hands of the apostles being taken and laid on sick people and they they recovered. So there is that. Um, that's a similar concept to G touching Jesus' robe. It's this sense of somehow this anointing, this presence of God is transferable through um, material, hum you know, physical material such as clothing. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. it does. It says, ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. I just thought that was an interesting sentence because you do, uh, once you, when you read the Bible, you pick up bits along the way that remind yeah. you of other bits. Yes, that's right. And I think that's, I'd say that's what the border of his robe means, the hem. I mean, if you think about the border, it means the very end of it. So the picture we're getting is that his entire robe, head to toe, is saturated in this oil. Yeah. And that definitely picks up that sense of this woman saying, I just touched the hem of his garment. Mm. Um, now, Can there is a. I will hem you in as well. I will hem you in. Um, anyway, well, now I'm probably going too far. That's, that's <laughs> Well, I think. 
I've always been taught that the hem of the garment was a was a picture of and this might just be a something I've been taught. I have to research it, but that the the, the royal garments, the hem of the garment, was a, a sign of authority. So it's linked with when David cuts off the hem of Saul's uh, oh. robe in the in the. Um, the cave that somehow the hem represents the authority so the reason david was so conscience stricken when he did that was it was like he was snatching that authority away from saul and that's this woman says when she touches the hem of his garment it's, if i can just touch that hem that represents the authority of jesus and that's what i've been taught and i've probably just done what we all do i probably just assumed that i haven't actually researched that myself so that's a slightly different meaning I guess that, that that then questions, does this Psalm 133 link him with the hem of Jesus' garment or not? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know, I, it, but it's a brilliant work. It's, <laughs> yeah, you can just keep on studying that stuff and look at different opinions and yes. see. Yep. So sh- I'm just, should we... Should we continue this discussion or go I, on to uh, no, Psalm 127? Let's, let's go on to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, I'm just going to read that because it's, again, quite short. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Unless the Lord builds a house, the workers of the, sorry, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with centuries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands how joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them he will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates i just have to read uh number three children are a gift from the lord they're a reward for him i've been in the house miserable house with covid children it's been quite painful doesn't feel like a gift right now no no but i've been checking myself saying i because i've been feeling grumpy with this covid but so this is a, a psalm ascending to Jerusalem, Psalm of Solomon, this one says, and yep. they will be singing singing this again going up. And uh, I know that the last time you, we recorded this, because this is the second time we're doing second it. Second time around doing this. We're already yeah. doing something different. Yeah. We go on tangents, but, yep. Yeah, we, we, we humanised it, your conversation. Uh, you were sort of saying, imagine them singing this going up and the kids are all around. And in that moment, you know, children are a gift from the Lord. They're born to a young man, and uh, it, it. I like the moments when you can imagine people in the Bible, and yeah. so you brought that alive for me last time. So I thought I'd yeah. mention it again this time. Yeah, no, that that's a good thought. It's a good thought. You know, I'm often I'm often struck with these passages because it shows a bit of a cultural thing too. Obviously, there was a real sense of you know children being the blessing, and blessed is the one whose quiver is full of them, and all that sort of stuff. And I think. It's a, this is a good example of how um, we we need to be aware of the cultural of the time too, because this this was in a, in, a, in a culture where uh, you know women who didn't have children were seen in negative light or weren't able to have children. I'm so glad that we're at a point now where we're a bit more enlightened than that, and we recognise that that you got to put this in its culture. Yes, children are a blessing, but that doesn't mean that the lack of children isn't a blessing either. You know, there are plenty of people who don't have kids who. Who you could read this and it's actually quite triggering or or, try, or quite 
confronting if, you, if you've been unable to have children or, you, or you've lost children. So I just wanted to say that in that sense of don't, you know, don't let the scriptures be unnecessarily triggering when you understand the cultural context. Um, it, you know, work, work within that. God is bigger than the culture of context, even of the things that are said in the scriptures, which he has inspired. He still limited himself and works within the cultural context. So, yeah, it's wonderful to have lots of children, uh, but that doesn't make a person who doesn't any less blessed by God or any less favoured by God. God. God is no respecter of persons. And I should state that if we all allowed it to be triggering, no one would read this thing. No, we would, uh, uh, we would totally. Lots of people would put this book down. It's well, there's actually been a bit of. I was listening to a podcast this week that was all about that, about you know, Bibles being banned in some American schools and things, and and uh, all the conjecture around that, the triggering. And I think it is true. I mean, you just about need a trigger alert on every page. And I think we need to we need to just bear that in mind and realize that this is a, the the Bible. Yes, it's the Word of God, but it is written through the God has partnered with fallen humanity and the culture of the time. And so we've got to take that into account and recognize that um, it's not, I've got to be careful how I say this, it's the word of God, but I think sometimes we've made it into some kind of infallible thing that it, it extracts from it the culture and that it was written in and to do so can make it say things it was never intended to say and actually can become more controlling and can be used in ways that are, are more controlling of people rather than freeing of people. Um, and I see a lot of that um, in some branches of the church. So I think it's important to do things like this. Just be aware of cultural context so that we aren't unnecessarily triggered. Um, I heard, as I said, when I'm, uh, one of my podcasts that I listen to and listen to Caitlin Chess. She's a young girl in her 20s. She's a smart girl. And just this week, one of the brightest minds I've ever heard ever, I think. And, you know, she was commenting on the violence and the challenging stuff in scripture and, you know, this kind of thing and how this can be triggering. And she said, it's important to, when you're listening to the Bible or reading the Bible, it's important to put it in its context. And I'm not going to be able to say this as well as she did. Um, <clears throat> she said, uh, it's not just the story itself for instance, it's what is that story teaching us about human morality and what is that teaching us about ourselves? So, for instance, you can you can um, read a story of violence and on one hand you can go, oh, that's, I can't watch, I can't listen to that, it's a violent story. But if you allow the story to tell its story, it's actually, um, it's not advocating for violence, it's showing the danger of that violence. So it actually does generate a positive moral response in us rather than a, a negative one. Did I, did I sort of make that yes, understandable? Yeah and, yeah, and I have been reading a lot of the Bible as more of, as more of an example as how not to live. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a good way to put it. It's, yeah, there's a lot, of, yeah. a lot of characters in there that are very questionable. Yeah. And yeah. I think that they, they are in there to learn from so that we don't yeah. make the same mistakes that they did. Yeah. And I guess you would understand that, Jenny, as a, you know, you and your husband as, as you know, in the in the movie industry, that there's things that there are, there are stories that need to be told, and sometimes they're told through violence and and things that aren't positive stories. But but the end result is 
it can bring about positive change if it's if it's um you know told the right way, isn't it? You don't just, just get, you don't necessarily go, oh, that's not violent. One of the things Caitlin was saying, for instance, is she was saying, you know, we've had this uh, this sort of whitewashed view of scripture that we should be able to read all Bible to all people, and she was saying there's no to all kids, for instance, all the Bible is relevant to all kids. She said I can't find a way to make the story of Hosea, who marries his wife who's a prostitute you can't tell that to a six-year-old child in a way that is going to make any sense so we have to allow space for that she was just making that point you just don't shove it down a kid's throat there's there's a it's it's a it's a sad and tragic story um, but it's illustrating something and it, separated from the, the moral that it's trying to tell it can be a very traumatizing story but put it in its put it in its context and ask ourselves what it, what is this story trying to teach us about human behavior about what to do and what not to do, I suppose. I just wanted to mention um, or bring up verse one here. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. This has been quite a, uh, a controversial, ha- uh, controversial verse, I think, in my life because it's when people tell you, uh, you know, obviously what you're doing is the wrong thing. God doesn't want you to do it because there's no doors opening. but I might be hearing in my readings and my prayer time that, oh, no, just to hang on and keep going, don't give up. So what you were saying before about uh, how verses are used against people, I think this is one that can also be used against people. Like uh, think about missionaries back in the day where they didn't see anything happen or uh, even um, church planters today uh, who aren't getting um Anybody walking through the door for a good years, a few good years or something, it's one of those verses that can be good it can or be bad. weaponized. Yeah, weaponized. Yes. Yeah. Well, that doesn't it then boil down to the the question behind that is what are we measuring as success? Because I think that's the issue: is if we have the wrong idea of how we measure successfulness or blessing or what's wasted and what's fruitful we will come if, if we have the wrong idea we'll come to that belief that somehow that the hardship is just wasted whereas i would say that's the problem is we're measuring success incorrectly god does not look at the outward appearance he looks at a lot more than just how big a church is or or um how wealthy a person is as as though they are they are somehow the measurement of someone who's more successful than than the opposite. And I think that's the problem. Yes. Yep. I agree with you there. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) That's for sure. Um, But I guess it is talking about really the sufficiency of man versus versus the sufficiency of God. Um, You know, man's efforts can be in vain, but um, if God actually does the work, furnishes and enriches, enriches, you can tell that I'm not well. Yeah, well, that's all right. You're doing good. That I'm not well, um, and but he does it during we're asleep. When we're asleep, that's what's where's that verse? That's uh, down down there. It's yep, God gives rest to his loved ones. I have. Yep. Yes, God gives sleep gives to his loved ones. Loved ones. ones. Yeah. yeah. But while we're asleep, he is still working. So yes. is that verse is this chapter sort of saying that uh, when God is making things happen in our life we just have to rest and rely on him and he will make it happen when we're asleep so what i'm saying yes i think it's it's a psalm that's trying to comment on how much we can spend our time wrestling and striving to get ahead in life 
where we're not trusting in God. So it's the it's trying to recalibrate that and go, look, you, if you're just striving and struggling, you might as well be, you're wasting your time. You know, you need the Lord to look after your city. You need the Lord to protect you. And he'll do that when you're resting. So it, it's a little bit like the Sabbath principle. It's like, for goodness sake, will you still tr- stop trying to do it in your own strength and trust that God will look after you? Mm. Yeah, and it um, I've got this written here in the notes that he gives his treasures to us while we're asleep. And it made me think of um, other times when people are asleep that God moves. Like, for example, he gave to Adam a bride, yep. Abraham a covenant, a covenant. I can't talk. And Jacob a promise. Yep. And, you know, he gave Solomon and wisdom. And Daniel dreams, interpretations in dreams. They were all asleep when it happened. Yeah. So love that. It was love reason that. for me to bring that up. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Because that's yeah, a good so picture that- of how God, yeah. God's blessing is not necessarily as contingent upon our our focus and struggle as we think it is. Um, you know, it's not about what we do for God. It's about being with God. If we are with God, he and, and even in our sleep, he can speak to us and speak through us and inspire us. And he works um, even when we're resting. So, yeah, it's a great thought. Wow. I love that, Jeannie. Well, thanks. At least I did one thing to King today. You've already come up with a couple of goodies so far. That's really good. That's good. I'm glad I've got these notes that I wrote down before because it's really slow, my cogs today. I can't even talk to Yes. And uh, I also wrote here, which maybe you might understand this, I wrote the song relates to the true Solomon and the Messiah and the Beloved. While he was sleeping in the grave, that's another thing. God gave him a house while he was sleeping in the grave. Can you see those? Why have I written those notes to myself? Can that, does that make any sense to you? No. Read it again. No, I have to think the, while he was sleeping in the grave. This, to the true Solomon, which is the true Messiah and the beloved, while he was sleeping in the grave, because unless the, the Lord builds a house, which is what God has done for Jesus, he's building the house, he's building yeah. The, the church, the church also yeah. the, um, building the the heavens. Yes, yep. um, the work of the builders is wasted, but he's not going to waste Jesus's work, is he? He's yep. going to go and yep. build his stuff. And the Lord is going to protect all those things that flow on from Christ. How did I? How did, I wonder if you're talking about something myself. like. It does make sense. Period. Is it about the period of time that Jesus is in the grave, you're saying? Like in those three days between death and resurrection, yeah. in those three days, he yes, yeah. he was yeah. still building. God yeah, was still I, building. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good call. Um, that's the sort of thing I would imagine a, a theologian like Matthew commentary to Matthew Henry to say in his commentaries. He gets he extrapolates those sorts of concepts out. Yeah, that's a good thought. That that even in the middle of Jesus' period of time of Jesus' death. That God was still working, and it wasn't like all had failed. That was actually Him establishing His house in that time. I think that principle applies yeah. that God works even in the midst of Christ's death, even when, even in the midst of death of relationships, death in our own world, hardship and pain. God is still working. I think that's a really important thought that we could pull out of this psalm. Because that's what I've been trying to do when I've been reading them. I've tr- been trying to think of other times that, or, 
or times when I'm questioning when it reminds me of one thing, could it lead to another? That's just my reading at the moment. Where have I heard well, this before? What does it make me mark think that? Of? Mark that, folks. What you what Jeannie just said is a brilliant way to read the Bible. When you're reading it, you use your cross references, or or the more you get familiar with the story, you've got to allow yourself to go. Uh, what does that remind me of? You know, she mentioned the hem of the garment before. Whatever it might be, what does that? What story does that remind me of? Because the way the the Bible is written sequentially, like that, is authors are often riffing off previous stories. There's a lot of repeated words that are actually used. I go back and use the same language, the same word structure, because we don't we miss that a lot in the English, but that's in the Hebrew or the Greek that it was written in. But that is actually intentional, so that when you load up one story, you was intended to load up three or four st- similar stories before. That's how they've written the scriptures. That's how the Spirit has inspired um, people to read it. So. I'm telling you, if you do what Jenny does, wherever I heard that before, write that down, then go and read that previous story and look for parallels and also significant differences. Sometimes you might see two things that are obviously paralleled and then one that's valid, a big difference, and that'll be telling you something as well. Yeah, and then the idea, I mean, rest goes a long way uh, throughout the scriptures. Yes. The idea, uh, and in the New Testament, there's a lot of, talk of resting in him and that yep. uh, and even the idea that jesus is the true rest the true sabbath there's all sorts of stuff that yep. comes out of again a little tiny song a little sum uh, so you yeah. take the word rest and then google all references to the word rest and maybe try sleep and other similar parallels google them and some of them won't make won't make sense they'll just be coincidental but there'll be there'll be a handful of scriptures which um you, you can see the obvious parallels, and that's all comes out of one little psalm. Brilliant. Yeah, yep, yeah. And I just wrote here my last note on this psalm that God gives gifts to his beloved, obedient children, and it's gifts no human energy can ever win. Yes. So his gifts are totally grace given and uh, sometimes bigger and better and more beyond than we could ever imagine. That's um, right. Amen. Yeah. Yes, and we're energized by him. That's what else I wrote from there. That's for sure. Yeah, okay. That's cool. really good. Yes, I don't think. Do you have anything else to say on Psalm no. 127? No, I think that's good on Psalm 127. Yep. So I think what All we're right. going to do now is we're going to cut back to our previous recording of Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, aren't we? Because we've already got those. I and think then so. we'll Then we'll come back again and carry on. Yes. For the sake of time, rather than re-record everything, so apologies if the sounds are not perfect, but um, it was good enough to get by, I think. So that's why we're yeah. sticking to Leviticus eight, nine, and ten. Here we are, back in the Old Testament. Uh, we're in Leviticus 8 and 9. We're just going to roll these ones together because this is actually the ordination of the priests in a previous podcast. Uh, I advise you to actually, or well, encourage you to go listen to that because we get sort of more stuck we'll into... covered in more depth. Yeah, we'll covered in more depth. And here it's just sort of repeating itself because those chapters were saying this is what to do. This is, yeah, those chapters were Moses on the mountain. Yep. Getting the directions. And now we're reading in Leviticus where they're actually, he's come off the mountain and they're actually doing it now. Doing it. Yeah. Okay. Th- that's why it says, then the Lord sent to Moses 
bring his sons. And then so Moses followed the Lord's instructions and the whole community assembled, gathered at the tabernacle entrance. So here they are. We talked about the priests before. Now they've come to actually see it all happen. Yep. And they're all gathered there to witness this great anointing of the priest. Yep. That's right. right. That's what's happening. Okay. And one thing I want to point out here in verse 5, Moses announced to them, this is what the Lord has commanded us to do. Moses here is acting in complete obedience to what the Lord has commanded. And a lot of this you see is the Lord commanding Moses and then Moses acting out that commandment. That's right. Exactly as the way he's told to, he yep, goes and does it. He's that exactly. Yeah. And just note that there are these things to do and that Moses does them. But then in chapter 10... Uh, something goes a little bit. That's right. When we get awry. to chapter ten, okay. So it's we're going the very next day after very next all day. This. Yep, so we're, we're just see that. so we're just going to re- do Leviticus not eight and nine together. Yep. So here basically sets up here that the this is all about the sacrifice at the beginning, and we're shown that the sinner needs a sacrifice mm-hmm. that we bring a blameless beast, and its death covers our sins. Yep. It also shows us that we need a priest. And um, the priests who mediate between us and God. And I've got this note here, the sacrifice and priest. Jesus is actually both of these things, mm. right? Yep. What yep. we learn later on, yep. there is he is the sacrifice, he is the priest. Yes. And this is all sort of pointing towards Yes, that. this is all pointing back to Jesus or pointing forward to Jesus. Yeah. And these next three chapters, they basically give prominence to the authority of the Bible in a sense that it shows us the, it gives the prominence to the authority and the preciousness of the blood and the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So we're seeing playing out yeah. here. Yeah, good call. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And and that we are, Moses obeys, to obeys this authority, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm yep. summing up here. Yep. That's a good summary, actually. Good summary. Okay. So uh, we Moses dresses Aaron and then he blesses him is that right yep yeah yeah that's what he does yeah he does as he does moses dressed him up and presented him and blessed him and uh, yeah yep verse 12 he poured some of the anointing oil on aaron's head appointing him and making him whole making him holy for his work yeah and then he presents his sons uh but they are not made holy right they're just they're dressed and later on he he uh, sprinkles blood on them, but yes. they're, they're different. It's a different kind of thing. Yeah, they're not the high priest. Not the high priest. Okay, yep. so go back. Please go back. Listen to the other yep. one. If I'm just going through it quickly, it's because we went through it. Yes, before. Right. we covered it in great depth last yes. week. Yes. Yep. Yep. And in wh- Exodus twenty-seven to thirty, in our conversation, that's where we covered it. Yeah, we did. So in this, there is a lot of the uh, lot, sacrifice. Almost reads a lot of it. It's almost, it's almost the same. Verbatim. Yes. Yeah, it is. And here, oh, wait, I, I was wrong here. In verse 30, next Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar and he sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. And in this way, they were made holy. Okay, So, so Aaron yep. was made holy with the oil. And As were the sons, which would make sense because the, Aaron is the high priest. He's He's got one unique duty. He's going to go behind the curtain into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. 
but his sons are also going to go into the holy place. They're going to be standing at the altar. They're going to be trimming the, the altar, golden altar and everything. So they, they need to be holy. They're going into a holy place, so they need to be holy. So it would make sense to me that they were sanctified or made holy as well. And so here we see that there, there's consecration, mediation, and sanctification. Mm. They're the words I've written down. Good words. That's good Bible words. Christianese good, words. Yes, Christianese words. Jewishese words. Yes. But yes, they are Bible words. So you said sanctification, mediation, and justification. Consecration. Consecration, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Consecration means to be set apart as holy. Sanctification is a process of being made holy. Mediation is standing in the gap. Standing in the gap. And who stands in the gap? In this case, well, first of all, Moses is standing in the gap to make them holy. And then by implication, Aaron will take on the job and the priest will take on the job of standing in the gap on behalf of the people. And then Jesus, essentially. And then ultimately, fulfillment is Jesus is the great mediator, our high priest who is, who is always interceding for us. Hebrews says we have a high priest who is always interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. So interceding and mediation. He's standing in the gap. So we have this separation of earth and humanity yes and it needs to be joined together via the mediator via the mediator and you'll see these themes played out it's played a, out. well it's essentially Jacob's the main ladder. theme it's isn't the, it it's, it's one of the primary yeah. themes of the bible yeah the separation being the intention being the reunification of heaven and earth through a through a mediator and then ultimately all of humanity filling that role upon the earth and being the mediator of the new heavens and the new earth to the world and they also sanctified the tabernacle at the same time. Yes. They were sanctified. Yep. The tabernacle was made sanctified. Yep. Because yep. once again, it's made out of earthly materials that needs to be have a holy transaction done to it so that it becomes a place that is holy. Yep. So that's this process of the sprinkling of blood is, is, the, is the way in which things are consecrated or made holy. Again, we went over that in the last one, so yes, we'll we just did. move on. It's actually pretty cool stuff. Yep. It's challenging stuff, but it's, uh, you know, it's eye-opening, I should say. It is. And here we have the – so the, the tabernacle was sanctified, and but we know that this sort of points to Christ um, being the tabernacle. Yep. Uh, in the New Testament, we see that fulfilled. I think it's – um really cool that God has come to live with them to be mm. it's the dwelling place of God right yes it is yep. in the tabernacle yep I have a note here that Christ is the dwelling place Christ is the true dwelling place of place of God I don't really know what I'm talking about there Christ is the true, true dwelling, dwelling place, place of, God. of God I'm not really sure what that note to myself well, meant. well he is but then <laughs> We are too, because Jesus, yes, I mean, he is in the sense that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus. Um, but then Jesus says, I'm going to go away to the Father and I'm going to send you the promised Holy Spirit and we will come and make our home in you and we will dwell with you. So we now are the place where God dwells, which is what he always wanted to do, dwell with humanity. That's right. I have, oh, here's a note here I have that the oil was going back to this. The oil was poured upon Aaron. And on the sons, but only after the sons had been cleansed by blood. Yes. And that Aaron didn't need to be cleansed by by blood. It wasn't put on him at the beginning. Wasn't put on him at the beginning. At the beginning, because Aaron actually stands as representing Christ, because Christ didn't actually need atonement. Yeah, that's a good point. That that fits the that fits the pattern. 
I've not thought about that, but that does fit the pattern. If Christ, the high priest, in this pattern, yeah, the high priest doesn't is representing the one true Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. So it's a type of Adam. So yes, there, there is in a sense that he needed it. Ultimately, he did because if you read the Day of Atonement, he actually had to offer sacrifices for himself before he could offer sacrifices on behalf of the people because there was this recognition that he was still a human being. But in this pattern that is being put here, I think that's a fair call. Hmm. But we all need to be cleansed, right? They have they have the oil in the blood. Yes. And then we all still need to be cleansed. That's what the washing is That's afterwards. What the washing the is washing afterwards. Is. It's the cleansing. It's that whole making us fit to be in God's presence. Mm. Yes. Okay. The the Bible project, their holiness video is really good on this. It's one of the earlier ones. And they they show how the word talking about holiness and they talk about it being like the sun. Incredibly rich and life-giving, but incredibly dangerous if you get too close to it. And that's what God's presence is like. It's the source of life. We couldn't live on this earth without without our sun. But if we get too close, it will be melted up. And so it's like, <laughs> that's what God's presence is like. We need to be fit to go into God's presence. Um, and that requires this ritual cleansing. It requires this sense of we've got to get rid of the blackness of our hearts. Somehow it's got to be dealt with so that we don't get consumed in the presence of God's holiness. That's, oops, oh dear, he's dropped dropped something, he's almost fallen over. (laughs) Excuse me, folks. He's getting back, he's pulling himself together, putting his microphone back on. We're going to get a a uh, first-hand look at what happens here at C3 Thurul when we drop microphones on the ground. In the meantime, I will deliver an amazing sermon. (laughs) You keep going. I'm going to walk up the back. I'm still talking to you. I'm just going to make sure, this is real time, folks. I'm just going to make sure that I haven't disconnected my microphone because... You know what okay. it'd be like if we talk all day. So it's after still this, working. Talk all right, I'll keep journey. going. Aaron has been anointed with the yes, blood and the oil. Things. And now uh, then they have to burn some meat. This is great reading. I really recommend that you do read it. And after all of these sort of, I guess you want to call them rituals that they go through at this point, uh, God said, well, God says to them in verse 33, after all of this, you must not leave the tabernacle entrance for seven days, for that is when the ordination ceremony will be completed. Seven days. Seven days. There's a lot of sevens. There's a lot of sevens yeah. through here. Uh, we haven't actually talked about it, but seven is a significant number in number of all completion. Of this tabernacle things. Yes, yeah. it is. So now stay at the entrance of the tabernacle day and night for seven days and do everything the Lord requires. If you fail to do this, you will die, for this is what the Lord has commanded. So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord had commanded through Moses. So they're there seven days, and it's not till after the seven days when in going on to chapter nine here when they make another another sacrifice Mm -hmm. take a young bull for a sin offering and then there's a a goat one too so there's there's two more sacrifices and then present all these offerings to the lord today because the lord will appear to you today so what do you think is going on here madness (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what was the first seven days about? The first seven days of co- creation? No, the first seven days of this order of this Cleansing. Ordination. It was for who? For whom, for the, I should say. For the not. priests. For the priests. For the priests, Okay, yeah. so now we're moving into 
an eighth day, and the shift is moving now from the cleansing and consecration of the priests to the cleansing and consecration of the people. Of the people. So it's, it's getting grander in scale. It's getting bigger. All right. And when you do this, these offerings, the Lord will appear to you today. Yep. So everybody is gathered around the tabernacle. Yep. They've Seven days have passed. They've gone home. They've come back on this eighth day and they're ready for the Lord to appear. Yep, that's right. And it specifically mentions that the elders of Israel are there. So now we're dealing with an authoritative thing. This is like taking it to the next level, like you say, getting grander. And they've seen the Lord appear in fire before. Up on the top of the mountain. Right. And they were terrified. Yes. But here they are. They've come around for round... They've come around for another Two, game. round three. Right. Yeah, exactly. So are they coming here because they're not in fear, but they want to see something happen, I suppose, do they? Yeah, I, I do. I think that they're trying to get a sense of wanting to desire to be in God's presence and have God dwell among them. They, For whatever reason, they've got that revelation that they want to be, that God wants to dwell among them, and they're, they're just following the directions that Moses has given them for how that's going to happen. So I don't think I can comment on what their mood is at the time. Um, I just can imagine a mob. They've seen this thing on the mountain. They've seen God. They were terrified. And now as humans, they all sort of come en masse for a bit more spectacle. We Maybe don't know, so. We don't know yeah. whether, what their hearts are. We don't know are. what their hearts are. You know, there'll be children yeah. there thinking, oh, what's yeah. going to happen? Yep. You know, is anything going to happen? Is anything going to happen? And there's also this, this big beautiful place that's been created. They've all been preparing all the perfect yes. rams and things have yes. been brought in they've all been discussing this at night this new tabernacle god's going to dwell supernatural in this brand new place yeah you know, it's about to kick off they've been building this thing for some time we want right a sign the of the camp yeah. yeah that's right they wanted a sign from god yeah and this is this is what they're doing they've now got this tent right in the middle of their camp the central place and so there is probably an excitement and an uncertainty and a nervousness about it i think yeah i would have been Mm. terrified i think if i seen this fire and what would i be expecting would i be expecting fire you think would i have been expecting fire i don't know does it comment on what they're expecting no i'm no, just a, no i just, just trying to place this, just in, the to place story, this in the story yeah make the story yeah. come alive well as we're going to see there is going to be some fire <laughs> in yes. a couple of months give away oh, give, give away, away the, end of the story here <laughs> let's keep going we'll see it but yeah i think there is this there's this there must be some kind of newness and excitement about this new tabernacle they've all been talking about and they've all made offerings towards it and everything else. I have a question. Can they see Aaron here or is Aaron further in the tabernacle? Can they see him dressed in his glory? I think so because it says it's at the... Um, well, they it? do. He prays for them. He yeah. blesses them. Yes. And Moses stands back at this point. Oh, well, in a little bit. And I think they're at, the t the, they're at the tent of meeting. They're at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So it's like, I imagine there's some kind of platform set up at the entrance, right right at the front of it, on the east side, I assume. Yeah. So, yeah, the people are gathered around. Not everyone. It's a big crowd, two million people or whatever. So they're not all going to be able to be there, but probably the, the elders are certainly there. Yeah, and verse, um, did I read verse 5? So the people presented all these things at the entrance of the tabernacle, just go. as Moses had commanded. Yeah. Then the whole community came forward and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. The Havod Yahweh, the Yahweh. glory of the Lord, the presence of God, the weight of God may appear to you. Yep. Then Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering to purify yourself and the people. 
then present the offerings of the people to purify them, making them right with the Lord, just as he had command, has commanded. So the high priest is, off, is acting on behalf of all of these people. Yes. Sort of a four-picture, I guess, of Christ. Yep. Right? Yep. Standing in the gap on behalf of the people here. Standing in the gap at the one entrance. Yep. The one gate in there. The one there. gate in. The one gate in. Again, go back to the previous podcast. Yep. So then Aaron goes in and slaughters the calf for himself and the sons bring him the blood and he dips his finger in and puts it on the horns of the altar. So he's consecrating those things inside. Uh, the the altar, the, hang on, he pours the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, then he burnt on the altar the fat and all that. It sounds deliciously disgusting. <laughs> deliciously disgusting. <Yeah. laughs> And, and wash the internal organs. Wash the internal like organs, fish. including the head. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard reading. Uh, he presented the offerings of the people. So the people brought offerings. Yes, here. yes. So this so is the beginning of the process. More than that. This is the people's offering their own offerings now too. So he slaughtered the people's goats. I mean, he could have been there all day doing yeah, this. Yeah, I don't know whether or not it's a representative thing. I don't know that it's a picture here. Is probably not that everyone is bringing it, but maybe the leaders of the tribes are bringing offerings on behalf of their tribe or some kind of structural way of doing that because this isn't like everyone bringing their own like, Passover lamb thing. I don't think that's the picture. It's certainly going to take more than just Aaron and a couple of boys to do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it would. Um, so I think these are probably representative offerings. Right, all right, okay. And grain offerings as well in there, yep. mixed in there. And it, it's when we get to 22 that the story sort of takes off, I suppose, after all of this um, bludgeoning and yeah. <laughs> and blood. <laughs> and uh, after that, in 22, Aaron raised his hands toward the people and blessed them. Then after presenting the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering, he stepped down from the the altar. Then Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle and when they came back out, they blessed the people again yep. together. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. And here it is, verse 24. Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When the people saw this, they shouted with joy and fell down, face down on the ground. There's a moment. There's a moment. Yeah. God accepted their offering. Yep. So this is now the fire on the top of the mountain is now the fire in the middle of the people. God has relocated himself from on the mountain to among the people in a way that is tangible and visible. The offering has been accepted. And this, this picture will be picked up um, you know, in the book of Judges where uh, Sam, Samson's parents receive the offering, comes and consumes the offering there. It'll be picked up multiple times. It uh, picks up Elijah on the Mount Carmel, God comes down and consumes the offering in fire. It was a, it was a picture of God, uh, God's all-consuming presence being pleased to dwell among his people. But it is, a, it is a consuming fire. It consumed the burnt offering. But so it didn't consume the didn't actual altar. It consumed the altar and it didn't consume this time. We're going to see in a minute. But it, this time it didn't consume the people. It consumed the, uh, the sacrifice. It the was sacrifice. A God's stamp of approval. God's fire represents his presence, which is purifying and holy. Um, you know, fire is a purifying thing. You want to cleanse something, you put it through the fire and cleanse of its mm. impurity. So that's what God's fire is doing here. Now, this is making sense to me about the Pentecost fire, mm. the tongues yep. of fire yep. that appeared, God's presence and God's, what did you say, anointing? Uh, uh, God, no. God's presence, God's purifying, purifying. presence, yeah. So Jeff and I, we've already, you will have already heard this podcast by the time this comes out. Jeff and I were talking about, you know, Day of Pentecost uh, a week or two ago and, and talking about 
this presence, the fire of God in the day of Pentecost is supposed to be like a reminder of this event and Mount Sinai and the new, the new Israel being formed by God's presence. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but am I seeing significance in fire, water, yes. oil, wind, wind, breath? Yes. yes. And these things can uh, carried through. We see them play out, I suppose, through yep. the rest of the You could actually the track every one of those track of them. metaphors all the way through and there'll be themes for how they represent the spirit of God, God's presence, that kind of thing. Yep. These real earthly qualities yes. representing God's... Yes. Yeah, and, God, and all in various God's, God's presence or God's, God's presence. person. Yeah, in all varying different ways and heavenly nature. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's so something washing, I need to look at. Breath, life, wind, fire, purifying, cleansing—all of those metaphors. Think about what they do, and they all are designed to represent the diversity of God's nature. So, in this tabernacle, we all—they are there. The fire, the burnt, the water. Yes. The oil. Yep. The incense. The incense is, is there too. Yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. And again, we have the fire and the, the lighting of the um, the menorah. The menorah. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. So it's yep. all in there. Yeah, they're all there. They're all rich metaphors used to describe God's presence. And I love this verse where they shouted with joy at the end and fell face down on the ground. Yep. In this moment, they are. What, give me a word here. What they are oh, in reverence. They're, they're, they this is an exciting. Exciting. Let's build the shocked. moment. Let's build the anticipation before we go to Leviticus 10. Okay. Right at this moment, this is day eight. They've gone through this seven day ritual. God has showed up among them. This is a new day. The presence of God, the stamping of God supernaturally, the fire has come. And they've looked at this from, you know, imagine if you're standing in the back of the crowd and just see, I don't know, you see a pillar of fire come down. This is, they're, they're thinking about the fact that they've just seen pillars of fire they've got pillars of fire and cloud protecting them by night they're living they're living brought in the them desert, out of egypt brought them out of correct? egypt so yep. this is god's presence has now gone from ahead of them to right in the middle of them so they they think oh god's here this is exciting this is a new day if i'm them i'm thinking let's go for it this is awesome and so this is a good day leviticus 8 is a leviticus 9 is a good day um it's a brand new uh, step into the into the next season for them, and I think you're supposed to see that way, see it that way, until mm. you go to Leviticus 10. Well, often we have mountains, and then we have valleys. That yes. is Leviticus 10. All right, Leviticus 10. Here we come. Leviticus 10. This is titled in my Bible, The Sin of Nadab and Abihu. Yes. And I'll just read a little bit. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. This is the incense that is in the tabernacle. Yes. Okay. In this way, they they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. What is going on here? Yeah, it's pretty confronting, isn't it? It is pretty challenging. God just appeared in fire, burnt the sin offering, and now he's burning sinners. Yes. Yes, (laughs) actually, that's the point. Oh, dear. So I think 
you know, we've got to read this in its literary guide, literary model, and, and I don't, I actually think this was literal. I don't think, you know, I don't think this is supposed to be a fable. I think this is actually what's happened. But that uh, that should confront you that here's two guys who have just been anointed as priests, and now the very same fire. Isn't it interesting that it finished the last chapter with fire coming down and consuming the sacrifice? It says, so it says, let's, the end of the last chapter says, so fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering. That was the end of the last chapter. Now it says in verse two, so fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed them. So it's the same fire doing the same consumption. One is consuming the sin offering. One is consuming the sinner. And I wonder if the picture we're supposed to get here is that these two guys who have just been entrusted with a major role to represent God to the people and the people to God. I mean, these guys are Aaron's two oldest sons. And They've gone through the seven gone days through of the seven day consecration. Ritual, yeah. And for whatever reason, they have decided we know best. We know how to do this priestly thing. We know what's right. What we'll do is we'll do it this way. Now, we're not given an insight into what their motives were for this burning this wrong kind of fire or it's just a ritual they basically weren't following the rituals that moses had laid out for them we don't know all the reasons why they weren't following those rituals but whatever reason for whatever reason we're not told there was a judgment that came upon them and i think it's fine to think of this judgment as in a similar way to the judgment that came upon adam and eve for whatever reason these these two brothers thought they knew better than god they thought they knew better and they'd do it their way we've got this thing down pat maybe maybe it went to their head I'm just speculating here. Maybe maybe what they've just been through over seven days went to their head. They thought we can do what we want now. And these are all speculations that scholars much more intelligent than me have argued about what actually went on here that caused this significant judgment. And you think about it, it does seem strange, but the, how different is this? It's not really that different to what happens to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts chapter I was just going to mention that. Don't we see this in a similar way yeah. play out later on? Yeah, and I think I think... For whatever reason, this isn't normal practice, but it's like God is instituting something and, and he's trying to remind them of the significance of doing it the right way and keeping your hearts pure. Because lot of, later on, there are lots of priests who whose attitude is far worse than this. Um, Eli has two sons who are sleeping with the temple prostitutes, who are taking all the meat from the sacrifice for themselves, and they're getting seemingly getting away with it for a period of time. So I think maybe it's just the first the law of first mention, there's something significant here. These guys, instead of relying upon the sacrifice and doing everything right, they they thought they knew best and the end result of that was was death. Does that mean they weren't saved? I don't think it means that. I mean, I'd say the same about Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think it means that necessarily they, they were so far away from God that they weren't they aren't with the Lord now. I wouldn't want to speculate on that because I don't think the scripture's saying anything about that. But it's confronting, yes, but I think it's telling us a story. We should treat our relationship with God as holy and important not some Jesus isn't some mate on the out of town that we slap on the back I should just say for those people listening who don't know who Ananias and Sapphira yep. are that happens in the, it's the book of Acts right I think it's probably about Acts 3 Acts 3 or Acts 5 it's the new church community they're setting up their community and they've they've been told to offer to bring their offerings well not even been told they or were they just people were just bringing, bringing their offerings yes, and, and then selling blocks of land and bringing them to the apostles so that they could feed everyone so and they sell their land and then lie about the amount that they have been yeah they did they give received, some they gave some they didn't give it all they didn't give it all, which was okay too they could have 
kept some for themselves. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that they tried to give the impression yes. that they were giving it all. And this is with Peter yep. and those two people are struck dead, one yep. after the other actually. Yep. Okay, so that's that story. And I think there's supposed to be a link between that and this story. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think if you're telling one's – yes. Yes. Yeah, you remind – it reminds people of this moment. Yeah, this, this sure. holiness of – this, this holiness of God, that he is, a, he is a holy God and, you know, we do well to remember that. that this, that's why I like this Bible Project video because it talks about the fact that it can be incredibly life-giving but the presence of God is also incredibly uh, dangerous mm. to the human heart that is blackened by sin. And we forget that, don't we? In our churches we always talk about how much God loves you yes. and, and that he gifts you and he blesses you but we don't ever actually sit and think about what his holiness mm. means mm. and that he is could be quite terrifying yeah and and let's just take a two second not two second two minute little interlude here and talk about we've talked about this before the justice of god i think it's worth mentioning again because this gets people confused this seems unjust but it's because we like to focus on god's love but for god not to judge a blackened heart if if i continue through my life with a heart that is selfish and blackened and doing it my way and think i know best I will wreak havoc on the world around me because I will always want to do things that are good for me at the expense of other people. So it require, a loving God cannot do anything but bring judgment and correction to that because otherwise I'm just wreaking havoc in my life. So God in his love will have to at some point, if my heart is so black or I treat him so flippantly that I don't think I need to allow his work to cl cleanse me, then judgment's going to come because it's the ultimate thing he's going to have to do. Otherwise, more people are going to be hurt by my actions. Does that make sense? No, that's that how, that's sense. how I view judgment of yes. God. As much as anything, it's because it's an act of God's love. Because he loves others who will be damaged by my, by my poor and selfish choices. I also look at it as God loves me so much that the people that I have cried out to, you know, and said, God, that person has hurt me deeply. I think God wants to bring justice to that person yes. for hurting me. He knows that we're a, p a people that do cry out Th for justice. That's the other side around. That's the yes, other that, side, That's the yeah. flip side of it too. So, yeah, think of it from that perspective. If you've been hurt, God is loving and will bring justice to, to you know, to As others. we want him to. As we, 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 we truly we would want, want him, him to. to. Yeah. Otherwise, he's not truly a loving or a just God. Yeah. I think, you know, as we record this, we're about to, weeks before you're listening to this, we're about to uh, go into our week about the conviction, the Holy Spirit being convictor, which is actually one of our earliest podcasts. You and I recorded, Jenny, and I've been talking to the preachers who will be preaching that message this weekend and reminding them that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is supposed to be around not uh, conviction for the purpose of judgment, but conviction for the purpose of he loves us enough to want to, uh, convict us and challenge us about our wrongdoing because we know that ultimately we're going to harm ourselves and others if we don't. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I've just made a note here to myself, slight segue, but still on the same track, uh, about this event that happens here, that men always seem to fail, men, men, all of us, seem to fail spectacularly, almost immediately <laughs> when we're placed in positions of responsibility and glory. Yes. yes. Yes, <laughs> we failed. Picture. Yes, Adam failed, Noah failed, Moses failed, Solomon, the the David. Yes, the Christian churches. We all yep. fail. Yep. Yet he still desires yep. us to have this relationship. Yep. Yes, he's with still faithful. Yet he's still faithful. Yep. He's still faithful. 
And so is this fire here meant to be seen as sort of like a glory? His God's glory? Um, when the Lord commanded and it was done, it was glory? There's that line? Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's God's, yes, it's God's presence, God's glory. It's all there together. Yeah. Um, the weight of God's presence brings judgment or, or, yeah. I don't know whether that in that word it's using the word kavod, the Hebrew word. Kavod? Or, yeah. Ka- well, we say, some people say kabod, but Hebrew, the Jewish, the, the Jewish word for letter for B, V and B are the same. So it means the presence of God. And it's the word, the same word we get weight from. It's heaviness. So God's glory is heavy. It's supposed to be like a load. It's supposed to feel the presence of God. That's how it's described here. And so it's another way of describing God's presence. So I don't know what the word presence means there, whether that's using the word kabod. I don't think so. I will display my glory before that will, people. That will be kabod for okay. sure. All right. Yeah. All right. It makes sense. And the next line is, and Aaron was silent. Wouldn't you we be? F- we forget here that his, these are his two sons yep. have just been... Burnt, destroyed yep. before him. Yep. After this amazing moment, here he is. He's silent because yep. he's in grief. Yeah, absolutely. And shocked with the, the horror of it, but also the judgment mm. of it. He would have to step back and say, well, God is... He's going to have to wrestle now with his God just and God fair and, oh, did they really deserve that and all of that kind of stuff. There's another story quite similar too. It's when David brings the, ta- brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and there's... A guy um, called Uzzah who touches the ark and he dies because he looks into the stead, he tries to steady the ark and he dies. And it's the same concept that they don't treat the presence of God with the right level of respect mm-hmm. that it deserves. I just want to read verse 4, a bunch of verse 4. You might be confused here. We're saying that they, the two men were burnt up as if they vanished, but they didn't actually vanish. They weren't turned to ash of dust they were just burnt because then um moses called for Mm. aaron's cousins actually and the sons of aaron's uncle he said to them come forward and carried away the bodies of your relatives so these are not consecrated priests these are uh sons from outside coming in to take the bodies away from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp so they came forward and picked them up and then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, "Do not show grief by leaving your hair uncombed or by tying your clo- or by tearing your clothes. If you, t- you will do, you will die." So they're not to show the grief; they are to stand in reverence of in, in awe of God's judgment. Is that right? Yeah, but it is confronting, isn't it? It is very confronting. It is confronting because it seems unfair. It seems unjust. So there has to be a deeper narrative going on here. What's it saying? Put. What's a stiffer lip? Put up a... Put up, yeah, put up, put up, yeah, yeah, stiffen up your lip or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that English yeah, exactly. saying, yeah. It seems like get over it, you know, which surely that's not what it's talking about. You're going to see that when it talks about how they try to eat some meat in a minute. Okay. Um, but so we, sorry, go on. Yeah, and I was just going to say, no, I think it should be it should be confronting, but I think, once again, the, the message is the same. Whatever you do, don't tear these priestly garments because they represent something more than what they are. So definitely don't tear your clothes. And I think in this moment, he's acting out. Aaron is supposed to be, act, he's, a, he's, he's stepping into the shoes of someone bigger than Aaron, the dad. So because of that, there's a higher expectation upon him to live to a different standard. I'm not saying he shouldn't have grieved when he left and all that sort of stuff. But I think in this moment, he's trying, he's, he's representing 
God. And so there's this holiness. He's representing, sorry, he's like the new Adam. He's representing the people to God and the God to the people. So there's a level of expectation and holiness and sanctification around him that he can't, he can't water down or he messes with the, with the imagery. Do you think this is a mirror of Christ in the moment as he goes to the cross? He's a man of sorrows that we know. Uh, he's full of grief with the world around him, but also, I can't remember the exact words. He, as a lamb was led to as the slaughter, so he didn't open his mouth. Yeah. Wow. So he now goes in and he doesn't, he has to, he has to undertake the it. obligation and bear it. Wow. I, that, I reckon that's what's going on. I've not ever thought about that. But yes, if you consider the high priest is a type of Christ, I reckon that's what Jesus is doing. He has to just bear this on this pain. He's 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 not just taking this pain for himself. He's taking this pain on behalf of the people. Yeah, I reckon that's it. And fulfill what I've asked you to do. Yeah, just go. God you've got to go through with it. You're the high priest. There is a sense in which you've got to suck it up. This sucks, but suck it up. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> because, suck it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really don't think it was said like that. No, but anyway. <laughs> no, but I think Jesus had to. Well, he wrestled in the garden to get to that yes, point where he could suck was it up. Was he burdened to the point of, what was that words he said? My, my soul is overwhelmed, overwhelmed to the point of death, he said. And I'm pretty sure Aaron's would have Aaron's been. Aaron's would have been the same. And this is his own Gethsemane moment. This is so good. That's a brilliant thought. So maybe, you know, this is a good example of how you dig into something that looks confronting and it starts to shine some more light on it. That doesn't mean that it all will fit into place, but dwell on it. Sit on it for a while. But there's definitely, it fits in that there's this holiness around this role that they're playing that they can't water down. And ultimately, it's pointing forward to Jesus. So maybe that's partly why God's saying you're just going to have to suck it up because... You don't want to mess the model up. <laughs> yeah. You mess up yeah. the model, the type, the pattern that Jesus will ultimately fulfill. Because if you don't get it now, we're going to relearn this lesson. Yes. We're going to do it all again. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So in verse 8, then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your... Oh, wait. That's just setting them apart. You must never drink the wine. You must distinguish yep. your drink wine or any other alcoholic drink before going into the yep. tabernacle. This is making them look different. Yep. The permanent law. You must distinguish yourself between what's sacred and what's common, between what is ceremonially unclean and what is unclean and what is clean. Where's the part about the goat? Because that's what I want to get to. They, uh, where they actually, it might actually be in the next chapter, which we may not get to. No, they, no, it's not. Where they offer. Here it is. Yeah. Cause, oh, here. Where they eat. There's a part they they have missed a part of the ceremony that they're supposed to do yes, here, and in verse 16, before, yeah, sixteen, yeah, Moses then asked them what had happened to the goat of the sin offering. Yeah, when he discovered it had, it had been, been burned, burned up, up, he became very angry with Eleazar and Ithamar. So, at what point is it burned up here? Is it burned up when the other two sons? No, I think what the picture is that there was this offering, this special offering that they were supposed to offer. Um, is it goes into these instructions around priestly conduct from verse 8. Uh, they're supposed to offer, um, you know, this new offering and they're supposed to eat this offering. And this is like the next day. Like basically it's, right, you boys, Nadab and Abihu are gone. Eleazar and Ethamar, you're the two remaining sons. You got the job. So you take over. You're now the only two of the four that are left. Um, so it's on you to carry on straight into the motions of straight into the priestly duties. And there's supposed to be this offering where they're supposed to eat it. And they don't. For whatever reason, they burn up that whole offering. Perhaps they're in grief. I think their that's brother what, died. So it seems Brothers that, died. That's right. There's a grief. Well, if you read this in its context, and I've not studied it, 
Um, so I would need to go to scholars. But verse 16, Moses asked them, what, what's going on with this goat? You're supposed to have eaten it. When he discovered it had been burned up, he was angry. And he said, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sacred area? Why didn't you do exactly what you were supposed to do? And you could be thinking, oh, these guys are in danger of the fires of judgment as well because they didn't do it. It's a holy offering, he said. The Lord gave it to you to remove the guilt of the community. Since the animal's blood was not brought into the holy place, you were supposed to eat it. So there's some ritual thing that they haven't done. Then Aaron answered and said, Today my sons presented their sin offering and their burnt offering, and yet this tragedy has happened to me. If I had eaten the people's sin offering on such a tragic day as this, would the Lord have been pleased? And when Moses heard this, he was satisfied. Now, I, I've never studied it, but I think at face value, this is what I read, at face value, it seems like Moses let them off the hook because to do it would have actually seemed to be disrespectful to um, to his lost sons and disrespectful to God. So he's actually letting him break the pattern, whether it's because of his grief or whether it's because of... Um, the fact that it would have been selfish to eat this sin offering, to take it on ourselves. You know, it would have been a selfish thing for me to get fed today. I should be grieving the loss of these priests, my sons, these people, and for me to eat. Because often eating is seen as a, is a selfish thing to do. Fasting is seen as a thing of you doing. Eating's a celebration. Eating's a celebration. Feasting. Fe- fasting yeah. is something you do, um, you know, at times of loss. That's often how it's seen. So I think that's what's going on here that Moses says, oh, okay, I get it, you're fasting. You, you're, you, you didn't want to celebrate today. So this isn't that they were disobedient, they were just sorrowful. I think so. Okay. Yeah. And were there laws around what to do when somebody died in uh, Leviticus? I, I can't think of any, but I'm just raising the question if that has anything to do with this moment. I can't think of any specifically. Uh, certain ty- types of deaths, there would have been certain laws, but I don't think there's a pattern for grief necessarily laid out that I can remember in Leviticus. Um, the priests, there were certain things about what the priests could and couldn't do with their dead relatives um, because of their role. Um, but yeah, I don't think well, don't think that's what's going on here. But I'd have to do the research. Mm. But it's a good example of how... You know, there's flexibility. You often see this in the law. The laws are set up, but then you've got to read it not as hard and fast always, as in it, God's looking more at the heart of the motivation. And I think the heart of motivation of Nadab and Abihu was wrong. I think it was self-righteous or self, you know, I know what's best. Whereas these guys don't seem to have that attitude. These guys seem to have a different attitude, which is we, we're grieving and we want to be faithful to our grief. I'm just going to spin a little here on uh, this verse. I think it... And 19. Just go with me here. Okay. If the disciples had eaten on such a tragic day when Christ was. (laughs) Almost said circumcised. Circumcised. Sacrificed. (laughs) Yeah, circumcised when he's a little boy. Yeah. If they had eaten, which is a reflection of feasting on the day of uh, Christ's. Yes. (laughs) It again. All I can think of circumstances. Okay, if they had, <laughs> would the Lord have been pleased if they had celebrated at his crucifixion? No, no, definitely not. No. No. Jesus even said that. He even said, today you'll eat and drink now. That He was accused by the Pharisees. How come you're always, the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting, you're always feasting. And he said, the time's going to come when they'll fast. He's referring to his death. He's saying, there'll, there'll come a time, but it's not yet. So yes, I think, it's something similar. Maybe that's the point is that 
there's a deep loss, there's a deep sacrifice that's taken place here. And so the grief is the same. I think that's a good read. Did you write that down yourself? <laughs> Did I write it down? No, I was just reading it then. Yeah, question. But honestly, yeah. I don't know why good I question. kept thinking. Good qu- I like the way you think. It's outside the box. It's outside like the it. box. I like it. Well, You're constantly filtering everything through the New Testament, Jeannie, which is a good way to do it. Um, I don't think... Pointing it back to Jesus. <laughs> I don't think the people of the Jewish faith would agree with me there. But No, no, no. Yes, but you're not filtering it through the... You're not doing, not one of these Christians who ignores the Old Testament and just tries to filter it through the New Testament exclusively. You're, you've got a good mix of being able to read it in its context, but also understand that it does project forward to Jesus. And I think both of those are necessary. You do that well. Oh, that's nice. But I, <laughs> I just think if, if Paul turned back to the Old Testament, then I should too. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's gems and there's pearls and yep. there's all sorts of stuff it in sure it. It sure is. So... Having said that about the Old Testament, let's now go to the New. New Testament. So here we are in Ephesians 5, and I believe we've already done Ephesians 1, 2, on a 3 on a different podcast, right? Yes, yep, the week before we did 1, yes, 2, 3 and 4, yep. Okay, so can you just remind me who's writing Ephesians and who's it for? So Paul is writing Ephesians, and we had a conversation about this as to where he was when he wrote it, Um, and there are different perspectives, whether he's in Rome, in prison. We do know he is in prison. He makes that clear in the the writings. So many scholars believe he's in Rome. Other scholars believe he's probably not. He he might be in inner Ephesus itself, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. Um, probably imprisoned there as he had some hardship there. We read about in the book of Acts, in which case um, the original author, the original um, recipients may not have been the church in Ephesus. It might have been a circular letter that was written at the same time as Colossians, Philippians, uh, Philemon, and uh, and it may have been a circular letter. It may have even been a letter that was written to the Laodiceans, which Paul actually talks about in the Colossian letter. He says, when you finish writing this letter, Send it over to your neighbours in Laodicea just up the road and read the letter I wrote to them. And so a lot of scholars think that might be this letter. And in the original language in Ephesians 1, it says Paul to the saints in Ephesus. It's actually added in later. It's more likely that it, um, it's Paul to the saints. And it, it, they think it might have been that he was the letter was found in Ephesus. The, the, the transcript was found there. So that's who he's writing to. We don't know 100%. We call it the letter to the Ephesians. Um, but in any sense, he's writing it while he's in prison. Um, at the, on the back end of a, a hard time that has led him to now have a significant encounter with God, a refresh of his encounter with God. And he spent the first few, three chapters especially, uh, talking a lot about uh, God's plan for the church, this glorious plan for the church, that it would dwell in unity, that it would represent God to the earth. Um, and now he's getting nitty gritty. He's getting down into what it means to be a body at work. And he was also talking about in 1 to 4 the idea of the Jews and the Gentiles also being united, united. right? That's that right. they that are the now one group in this faith. So would I be correct in saying that, verse, that chapters 5 and 6 really focus on how you should let Christ transform you, how you should live differently as the Christian? Yes, yes. Unity so, in the body and now personally this is what your life should look like. Yep, totally. At least, yeah. 
Exactly. Okay, one, two, so and three. Any... One, two, and three is setting the stage for the picture that he sees of what the church should be and what God intends it to be. Four, five, and six are, are the practical outworking of what that um, ideal should look like in the church at a relational level. And so what a, a Christian should look like, how a yes, Christian what... should look differently. And yeah. he's quite, um, yeah, he's, He's very uh, precise, I suppose, in how different they should look. Like in um, here, I'll just read a little bit in verse one, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish jokes and foolish talk and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. So he's shaping up a very different kind of looking person. Mm. Uh, and a, a person that not only would look different then, but would look very different now. This is the kind of person you want to be around, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, a person yes, who, who lives this way, they're an encouraging, positive person to be around. Yeah. Uh, and they're not immoral. They're not greedy, I suppose. Yeah. That's what it says. Yeah. That's right. So it, it is a real. Would you think when Paul was writing this, was he really believing that Christ could really change somebody like from that to this? Yes, one hundred percent. That's his vision. He thinks this is God's ultimate plan, and he is. He's setting the standard. He's setting the standard up here, and he's saying, and he's calling on us now to say, "Come on, this is this is who you're called to be." Now, with Christ's strength, I urge you to live this way. Uh, what does he say at the beginning? He says, imitate God. You know, and in other versions, he says, I implore you, I plead with you. He's saying, come on, you've got more in you. And with Christ's help, you can do this. It's what I see for you. It's what God wants you to be. And when he says imitate God, do you think he's really meaning love others as I have loved you? Yeah, yeah. Yep, I think so. Because you're his dear children. Yep, I think so. Yep, and that's that's he wouldn't maybe he doesn't use those words because they're words that John the apostle uses in his in his letter, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John fifteen, I think it is. Um, but it's it's definitely the same principle. It's this selfless love. Godly love is a selfless love. It's not a selfish love. It's not, I'll love you to get something out of it. It's, I love you unconditionally. And that's what he's saying. That's how to imitate God is to love unconditionally. And they would have been selfless, right? They're all collecting, or supposed to be seen to be selfless. They're all living, not living together, but all meeting together, providing food for each other, supporting yeah. each other. And also because uh, they're under attack, right? They're, they're yes. living, there's the yeah. persecuted people. But they're finding harmony together in this um, in this moment, in this new idea. Yes. It would have looked really different to people. Radically different, radically different to the Roman world. Uh, the whole concept of sharing and people being who are different, being together and seen and working together in unity. And it's supposed to be radically different. Definitely. This is supposed to be a body at work. It's co contrasting it with a body where everyone, every part of the body is fighting against itself. This is, this is a healthy body. That's his vision. Come on, be a healthy body, he would say. And uh, was it um, Emperor Nero? Was it Nero at the time? 
Nero, uh, well, yeah, Nero is 66 AD. Um, I'm yeah. not sure when Ephesians was written. It would be around that time. Anyway, it would be written. If it's not, it's around that time. What were you going to say? Oh, just, I mean, the leader of the time, Nero, if it is Nero, I think it is. Uh, you know, he was very, he's rumoured to be very um, debaucherous. And, oh, yeah. And, and he killed his wife and all sorts of stuff. So this is this is the leader of the nation. And so the Romans would have looked quite, I don't know, where am I going with this? I'm just saying the culture at the time was very different. Like they could kill anybody they wanted. There were different rules for different citizens or not citizens. Yep. Yep. And yet there, um, Paul's writing here, he's creating a new vision, a new place for people yep. of all different walks in life to come together. Yeah, you he's, got it. That's right. Which is radically different to how it worked in the Roman world. Yep. Yeah, okay. And so that when I think about in the context of the times, when I read sort of verse 7, don't participate in these things people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So that should show you that there is a not only a shift inwardly, but a shift outwardly when people become, when people yeah. come to Christ. Yeah. And I, I just saw this, I was just thinking about this. I don't know. Because the people that I know in church who've been there for a while and all the Christians that I know have been there for a while, like, are we still seeing people so transformed in an instant that they once they really did walk in darkness and now they don't? Have you seen that recently? Um, because I, I, I would say I don't think Paul was seeing that either, though. I think Paul is every, pretty much every one of Paul's letters is written to deal with problem Christians. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, you're right, so, yeah. He, he's set, setting an idealist and he's saying, this is what has happened to you on the end, on the inside. Now I want you to work that out on the outside. So, so I don't know that any of us are instantly that well, sanctification is a process. It means to become more like Christ, to, to imitate him more and more. And that's the process of, of learning to apply God's truth from the outside to the inside. And, and I think that is the ongoing process. Paul says, you have been justified. It's outward. Now I want you to uh, focus on the inside. Yeah, I think that's the way so to view are it. You saying, are you saying that the walk of faith is less an instantaneous change and it's more of a slow burn sort of faith yes. where you grow slowly, yep. Yep. spiritual milk becomes yep. solid food, and be encouraged okay. by that, folks. Well, that's, that's not a discouragement. That should be an encouragement that God continues to work with us in that process. A lot of, I mean, a lot of people go, "Oh, I'm not good enough. I, I should be better." And and it's good that you're not where you want to be, but also to recognize that Christ is still continuing His work in you. So my backwards way of getting to this point is, and I, I don't, I don't know if you can see the where I'm going with this at all, Rob. <laughs> but um, it's just just that. I, it makes so much more sense to me that the walk of faith is that slow thing, less than that yeah, instantaneous that's right. thing. And um, and that when you meet Christians, you have to be able to, within the church, there has to be this grace because we're not all perfect. And, no. in fact, what we believed last year, we may not believe next year or rather the yep. way we walk out our faith. Yes. So a letter like this to me is, is encouraging because, if I come to church as a 
a really bad, uh, I would call myself a bad sinner person, uh, unconverted, or I'll put all the bad names upon myself yeah. at this moment. But then I come into church and I don't have this transform, this moment that changes me, but instead I walk out and I just continue doing a lot of the stuff that I used to do. I kind of feel better about that because then I know that it's a slow thing. Yeah. Barry, Barry Chance, oh, it's, it's so important, G. And I think we have this whole concept of, you know, sin is in the hand of an angry God that somehow he's angry and he's trying to beat us up. He's not. He, he deeply loves us and he's patient with us. And he, he understands our frailty and he wants us to keep journeying forward. And Barry Chant, Dr. Barry Chant, has famously said, and I've never forgotten, he said, uh, the Christian life is plod with God. Plod with God. And I think that's the thing. Yeah. Sometimes you do get a quantum leap forward in life where suddenly there's a life-transforming revelation or or a, an addiction is just broken and you move forward. But that's the exception, not the rule. Most of life is just consistent plotting, consistently living out, consistently turning up, consistently studying the Bible, consistently hanging out with people, consistently coming to church, and little by little we become more like Christ so glad you said that because I've always thought, you know, there's the Bible bashing and then you're smite. Is that the word smite? I smite, smite you? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. That's what I, I thought. I thought if I ever read this Bible, I'll open it up and suddenly I'm smited. That's well, I stay tuned. I mean, we're coming in a, in a, in a, in a, um, a couple of months time, we're going to be uh, doing a series on salvation and I'm going to sort of unpack some of this I'm hoping to be able to unpack some of this stuff and we'll probably come up in our podcast as we work it through um, around what it really means and who the nature of the Father and the nature of what salvation is all about so we can get away from this help, this hyper-fear-based mentality. That isn't, that is not, um, it's not healthy and I don't think it accurately reflects the God that I see revealed in Scripture. No, and the more I read it, the more I see how gentle he actually yes, is yes, the nudges yes. are gentle and you read these sort of statements here uh like verse 10 carefully determine what pleases the lord now i'm not going to learn that in an instant am no. I? no pleases the lord no, I, I am going to carefully tells you time yes that's yeah. right yeah and to take no part in the worthless deeds of evil well i've got to figure out what the worthless deeds of evil is until i take no part in it uh, uh, and expose them whatever it is um, well, here's a good one. So a lot just, of a lot of Christians pick up on worthless deeds of de- worthless deeds of evil. Here's a little thing for your listeners as you listen to this: if in an instant you've come up with a subset of what you call those worthless uh, deeds of evil, and you very likely will come up with a subset based on whatever you're listening to, whatever worldview you have, and there'll be a list of your deep dark sins that you think are the worthless um, uh, deeds of evil, and then there'll be others of you that'll come up with a different list. The point is we need to be really careful that we don't just categorize a certain small list of things in that category because there are things that we'll be blind to that Paul wants us to deal with. There'll be other attitudes that we don't realize are in that list if we just go, oh, I'm not this and I'm not that and I don't behave that way. I'm not one of those people. We'll dismiss the fact that Paul is trying to speak to us too and say, hey, we've all got this. We're all having areas where we we wrestle with the worthless Deeds of evil. And worthless deeds of evil there. Am I wrong to think that that might change in uh, generation to generation, which is what you're kind of saying? Yeah, are you wrong? Um, 
Well, there are some things that stand the test of time. Um, certain, you know, there'll be certain things that, certain behaviours that the scriptures, aren't, you know, ultimately God says, don't do these things because they're not good for you or good for other people. I don't see do not murder changing anytime soon. That's a good I don't example. See do don't, not murder changing anytime I, soon. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's a good example. It's not like suddenly that's going to be okay. Anything that harms us or harms others is timeless. Um, but there'll be certain things that might be more culturally appropriate. So, for instance, in some cultures, wearing a certain form of clothing um, might be culturally inappropriate and might do harm to yourself or to other people. But then to wear that clothing in a different culture or in a different time might not be. So we need to be aware of, and the question I'm always asking myself when it comes to what is sin, because that's what you really what you're asking. I'm hearing you say is, what is in this list? What is sin? Well, sin is anything yeah, worthless that... Worthless deeds any, of evil. Yeah. It's worthless deeds. It, it's anything that harms us or harms others. Um, and in doing so, it, 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 it harms God. But God is harmed because... God is harmed by our sin, not because somehow it affects him, he limits his greatness. He's harmed by that because... It lets him down because he's. We have not honoured the image of God in ourselves or in other people, and that's how that's how sin harms God. So, anything that harms or affects the image of God in us or others, that's sin. And when we during our lives, I think sin also change not not the gravitas of sin changes. Like for example, when we would um, make jokes about people, we would call people names and things it's only now in our sensitive culture that we realize realized how serious and how yes. simple a statement actually is yes so but the sin that, has already it was there but now we 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 i think you can look in chapter in verse here expose them here instead expose them take no part in the worthless deeds and i think we're now being exposed the light is exposing on things such as um name calling whereas before yeah. it would just be six six and stones will break my bones and they you know name calling won't hurt me but now we realize oh that's a really serious thing the light has exposed we see that that's a significant that's a great that's a great example of it people yeah so while we understand the reasoning behind that method that 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 old proverb sticks and stones that we grew up with we were trying to teach kids resilience we were trying to teach kids that um, you know that you know ultimately you can take control but in in doing that may even with the best of intentions we have while we may have helped in some regard we've also inadvertently brought harm to others who have now thought oh there's something wrong with me because I'm hurt by the way that person has said that about me and so the question needs to be constantly filtered through that whole thing of let's just not use cliches because cliches can actually harm other people so I think sometimes culturally these thoughts might actually go the opposite direction so here we have in verse 21 and 22 22 specifically for wives this means submit to your husbands as to the lord now that would have been a worthless deed of evil would have been if they didn't submit to the husband yet now we do not actually see that submitting to your husband is an equal act so is that therefore that worthless deed is culturally undone and it is no longer a worthless deed of evil. Rather, our relationships have changed. We live in a very different time. So therefore, 
submitting to your husband, we can kind of leave that verse out. Well, let's have a look at verse going? I think I think I can. I think I can. I think perhaps though what we are doing is what you're doing. I think is you're commenting on the way a lot of twenty first. You're taking that's right. That's right. So what you're doing is you're commenting on the way a lot of twenty first century Christians are interpreting this passage, and you're saying that's not appropriate, and that's true. I agree. I would backtrack a bit though and go I'm not even convinced that's what Paul was trying to say in the first place so um, I when Paul is saying uh, you know submit to your husbands we we shouldn't be trying to read that literally either Paul Paul was actually commenting on the household codes here this is this passage in Ephesians 5 is around the new household codes the way that the Christian church families the Christian families were supposed to be different to the Roman family code and so while it seems archaic to us it's actually quite progressive to them the problem is are you saying that was like a free like almost like an act of freedom is that what yes i'm exactly saying that now that's hard for us to read through a 21st century lens but read it through a first century lens this is actually an act of freedom so in a in a roman household the um the the father of the house is the patriarch he basically has absolute say um in some of the really rich homes, the the wife of the husband would have a degree of authority as well. Um, and if the husband was a was a um, had died, then the widow she she would she would have a degree of authority. But beyond that, the children and the slaves in that household were not to be seen. They had no authority um, unless they were empowered by the patriarch of the home. That's standard Roman household. Paul is already inverting that because he starts with submit to one another. Now, that that in itself oh. is completely, that's how it starts, submit to one another. Well, you've just gone straight to, to 22. Yeah, yeah, but I'm going to go straight to 22 because that's where any woman I would know. go to. I know, that's right. So there's a mutual submission. Straight away, Paul has upended the household code and he's saying, Christian homes, there's a mutual submission. Um, and then he goes on and says, wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, straight away, that sounds archaic. However, in the Roman household, Paul would not have even spoken to the wife or the children, and you're going to see him do both those things. Wait um, a minute, Paul would not. Sorry, are you saying Paul would not have spoken to? So, if he's not, if he's, why is he writing about them then? Why is he bothering? He's, why is no, he he's bothering? Said, in, in, in the Roman world, you did not address any member of the house without going through the patriarch of the house. So if you wanted to address a slave, if you wanted to address someone, you went via the patriarch and you spoke to the patriarch. Paul's already upending that because even before he talks to the husbands, he starts talking to the wives. So this is this is um, raising the, the level of respect for women immediately. He goes, I'm going to bypass, you want to know how special you are to the Lord, ladies? I'm going to bypass your husband. I'm going to talk to you directly. So he talks to the women before he talks to the men. So he has actually elevated, not pushed down. He's saying, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to address you as equals, ladies. And one of the best ways that you can show submission is your submission is played out through this way of um, submitting your life, coming underneath your husband and lifting up your husband. So he's actually addressed them. Now he's going to go on and say, now, addressing mutual submission, husbands, this is how you're going to do mutual submission. You're going to do it um, through the whole concept of loving your wife 
as Christ loved the church. In other words, selflessly giving up. Now, you men, you're not used to that because you're the patriarch. You get to do whatever you want in a Roman household, not in a Christian household. In a Christian household, if you're the man of the house, your job is to live completely selflessly and die. Be willing to die for those in your house, in your home. So are you saying that when this letter was read out to people, if, if, it would, if it had been read out to us now, we'd all be standing in the room going, oh, this is terrible, listen to that. But those women back there would be standing feeling purposed and heard and seen and valued. Is that what you're saying? And yes. They and he, like, what? Is he talking exactly. to me? He's talking to me. And history proves that. Um, I remember hearing Rodney Stark say this. He says, I don't know why any, you know, why, you know, there, what, there was so many uh, women, girls joining the Christian church in this era, and it was because they had a place. They were valued inside the church. And it was passages like this that they were living, the Christian church was living out these passages of valuing women. And uh, it was a it was a horrible place. He said something like, I remember him saying something on an interview like, you would not have wanted to be a woman or a girl in the Roman world. For most of them, it was horrific, but inside the church, there was hope. So this would have been, I mean, huge for women to hear this then because in the Roman world, like as you just said, women were discarded, they were, they were thrown out, uh, little girls were um, left on the streets, to ba- babies to be exposed and die. And yet here is this group of people, group of men saying, love your wives because Christ loved you, but but to embrace them, to to give them these new this value. This Is that value. What you're saying? Am I hearing this right? That's pretty good explanation of what I'm saying. That's how I, that's that's how I read it. That's my study. That's what it's shown. Um, and if you're talking about worthless deeds of flesh, this is why I get so fired up when. 21st century Christian men come back to it and read it literally. And it's not just men. There are women who have this too, but they read this and they they then try to enforce this and compare it with the culture we have today. And they think that, um, you know, we've become too progressive and we're giving women too much voice and this is how it should be. It should be like Ephesians rather than realizing that actually Paul was, it, it was down here. Paul brought it up to here. It's just that now society has progressed with more equality the reason our society has progressed with more equality is it's been built on the values of Ephesians 5. Those values have played out through lawmaking over 2,000 years, and now we are, we're benefiting from that, and we should be now going, well, how can we allow Ephesians 5 to continue to bring about even greater values of equality and um, treating all people equally and mutual submission? Rather than winding us back, it should be continually propelling us forward towards this image of a body that is in complete unity. Back like Psalm 133 we read at the beginning, families in unity, church in unity, that's God's pattern. And you can, but when you're saying that, you can see why Christianity has grown, why people have come to it. Of course, it is very different to the entire world around them, the ancient world, the... Um, <laughs> Even 500 years ago, we're talking this is hugely yeah. different. Yes. Right. Yep. But, and, and I wonder if we are now a lot closer to the way to God's meaning or idea of equality uh, than we have ever been before. Men and women are equal. We were meant to be equal. We're, we're closer because people have taken on these views, because men have loved their women, because 
women have been lifted up by this word. So we're getting, are we, we are we closer? Yes. Am I answering my own question? Yes, maybe. Are we Still closer? Yes. Are we there yet? No, that's right. That's why I think no. we should be continue, rather than trying to do what I see so much of the church doing, trying to wind this back. I think we should be going, what was Paul trying to do in the first place? How do we continue that? Because we're not there yet. We're not where we were. Heck no. But we're not where we should be. And this isn't about, no, this not- isn't about, this isn't about, I know that there's, you know, because of the harm that's been caused, it's human nature. There'll be, there'll be, uh, you know, the extremes of feminism, which will be all about, you know, the women having superiority. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about all people being created in the image of God. And when a society moves in the direction of all people, of all backgrounds, of all genders, of everything, of all ages, all disability, ability, all people are created in, in the image of God and we treat them equally and fairly, that is when we're getting closer to Paul's image of what he wanted for the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, in my generation, why, why I think we are closer, just thinking about these verses again, whereas I've always viewed this culturally and I've always uh, viewed them in context and seen what you are saying here, what Paul was originally saying about them. But for the younger generation kids these days, they're so far removed from where my position was. They see these verses as a huge stump. Well, I see them Step as a back. huge stumbling block for yep. them and a reason to just shut the book completely. Yep. Well, um, parents, if you've we got kids that are to, asking these questions, yeah. give them this podcast. <laughs> Have this yeah. conversation well, that's with them. It's so important to understand the context and also understand Christianity over the last 2,000 years and the Christian worldview and how it's actually changed the world and how the world we live in is built on Christian ideals and morals and uh, we're just, people are forgetting that. We're we're rich in it. We live in a culture rich with Christian faith, yet we're not able to see the faith for various reasons. That's right. I agree. Yeah. So anyway, that was my rant for that one. Oh, that's a good, healthy rant. It's inspiring. Uh, is it really? That's so kind. Yes. So kind yes. of you. Just trying to see what else. What other questions do I have here on, on um, Ephesians 5? Although I did have one question here. What does it mean to shine in the darkness? What verse did I get that off? Mm, what verse is that? I must have been uh, take, I must have been off that, expose them. It must must be that exact same verse, verse 11. Verse 11 back up there. <laughs> yeah. I'll hear it because it is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines. Oh, okay. Or the light makes everything visible. This is why it said, Arise, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Because there's a lot of talk about being the light of life, uh, Christ being the light. And how do Christians be the light these days when it's just there is no real, like I, I would go on record and saying that sin is dead. I think there is no sin. Yep. But yeah, so where, do we, where do we shine the light? Are we meant to shine the light for um, people who can't look after themselves? Like, are we meant to be mental health advocates? Are we meant to be put ourselves more in hospitals? Like what sh- how do we shine the light today? All of the above. <laughs> All um, of the above? Yeah, I, I think anywhere in society, whether that's across the street, across the country, across the world, anywhere we go, 
where we replicate or seek to bring Jesus' values, Sermon on the Mount values, treating people with dignity, honouring, restoring, repairing harm. Anywhere we do that, we are shining the light of Christ. Some people will say shining the light of Christ just means preaching at people. And I'm not saying we shouldn't preach the gospel. We should. Uh, But I think if it's going to be effective and have the result we're looking for, it's going to be effective when people see that we love them. Stephen Curtis Chapman had a, a song years ago that said, don't tell them Jesus loves them till you're ready to show them too. And I think that's how we shine the light. We shine the light through this unconditional love, which is what God shows us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't get much more of a demonstration, an outworking, a practical demonstration of love than that. And if all we want to do is just tell people Jesus loved them and we're not prepared to die for them, then we aren't imitating God. Okay. That's, and that is, um, I'm glad something there made me realize why I asked the question in the first place. Because these chapters here show you that you should be living this light, right? Yeah. Rather yeah. than just preaching, going, banging people over the head with the yeah. Bible, which is yeah. what I've been taught to do. <laughs> not yes, that's it, right. That was my generation. Oh, that, was, is that was the narrative that we got. Yeah. yeah. But I heard a lot less about being a Christian who shows love. A lot that's because less that's a that. standard, standard evangelical view. A Western evangelical view is we've limited the salvation down to just get people to pray the prayer, preach the gospel, tell them about Jesus dying for their sins and get them to pray the prayer. But if you realize what Paul is, Paul actually doesn't say a whole lot about that in all his writings. He actually doesn't say much about that. It's not that it's not there. It is. But I think it's we've made it out of proportion at the expense of so much else that Paul talks about, which is this pattern of how we are to conduct ourselves, especially how the church is supposed to conduct itself. And he would say, I think if you were to ask Paul today, he would say the ultimate demonstration of preaching the gospel should be a church as a body at work in the community in such a way that everybody that comes into contact with any point of that church, it's so attractive to them that they are drawn to that, like moth to a flame, and then they discover Jesus in that context through the actions of the church, through the fact that church is so radically different and lives by this different code and honours and esteems people who the world cancels and all of that. And that should be how the how Christ is preached. Yeah. Okay, so if I think of the church here that Paul is writing on, it was a church that looked really different, a church that invited people in, that loved people, that was accepting, tolerant, in encouraging and tolerance a strange word for these days but encouraging one that took people in off the street gave them food uh, helped them heal when they were unwell that's what we should be looking like now yep and and it might have different cultural contexts up here in the north of Illawarra there's not as much physical poverty it is here but it's not as much but there is different areas there are different areas of poverty uh, that aren't even financial whatever the needs are whatever whatever humanity whatever life has thrown at all of us the church should be a place where people can receive healing acceptance yes tolerance i think i know what you mean by the word tolerance but yes that should be radically attractive and it's in that context that people meet and discover jesus and that's what i mean by not saying don't tell them don't if you're if your neighbor is asking questions or is open towards finding out about jesus by all means ask them 
but they're more likely to come to that point if they look at your life and they look at the way that you and your church interact and and care for one another and care for the community. They're much, they're much more likely to come to that point where they want they go, oh, I want what you've got. We have a lot to do then, I think, because at this point in time, people don't think the church is like that at all. No, and uh, it's getting more that way, Jeannie. Um, and yeah. I think this is part of what God might be doing. There is, you know, there are those that are hunkering down now and saying we just need to preach more and yell louder. I actually think this is our season to change up some of the things we have done, put right some of the wrongs that we have as the broader church committed, own up to some of that, and and be willing to change and grow and keep up with the times so that we can reach as many people as possible. That's a good answer. Lots to think about. So stay tuned. Good things coming. <laughs> it's a low, <laughs> slow process, that one. <laughs> Here we are in our last chapter of Ephesians, chapter 6, uh, which is a continuation of uh, the themes we were discussing in number five, but it's specifically uh, the text, ter- the letter rather, turns now to children, doesn't it? And to children and parents and slaves and masters and all people that were part of this new unity of believers. And yep. uh, and we mentioned before in, um, in chapter five about the equality of a man and woman. We're now uh, talking about the equality of slaves and masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. This is a, like an interesting statement because, uh, well, you know what, just let me start to read it before people get too confused on what I'm saying. I'll start with chapter uh, verse 1, which says, Children, obey your parents because they belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Verse 2, honour your father and mother. And verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them, rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And here, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters and with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to pre- please them all the time and uh, do the will of God with all your heart. I'm just sort of going through a bit. Yep. And verse, verse 9, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. We should just state slavery was a very, very common thing in the ancient world and it's actually still common in many parts of the world sadly um some people say that there's more slaves now than there ever have been that's what i believe too yep yeah yes uh but this contrary to what people think this is not condoning slavery is it correct no this is not condoning slavery at all this is once again upholding a higher standard of the household code it's like paul Paul is trying as best as he can, whether or not he actually got there himself to the point where he goes, well, slavery is wrong. I think Paul believed it was wrong. I think there's enough evidence here to say he believed it was wrong. But you've got to remember your entire economy was based on this way of life. And in fact, to be honest, this was part of the argument um, when the Clapham sect and William Wilberforce were trying to overturn slavery in the British Parliament a couple hundred years ago. The entire economy was built on it. And there was a fear that if they emancipated the slaves, that the entire economy would come crashing down and there'd be a GFC basically um, because there are implications for how that works. And that was the same in the United States. But Paul here is 
taking a step, and it's this it's this step that he uses in this passage, which people like William Wilberforce, who's an inspiring character. I mean, if you haven't read his story or watched the movie Amazing Grace, it's it's worth watching because it's an absolutely inspiring story of how he took passages like this and advocated for the abolition of slavery based on the fact that Paul here is is radically elevating slaves. He's like you said at the beginning, he's making them equal. He's actually put he's talking to he's talking to slaves for start, starters. He's talking to the slaves before he talks to the masters, just like he talked to the wives before he talked to the husbands. So he's elevated them and he's he's saying, This is how I want you slaves to live out your life. And masters, this last bit, verse nine, masters treat your slaves in the same way was unheard of no one told them no one even cared about how a master treated their slave it wouldn't even enter into anybody's thinking in roman culture to tell a master how they should treat their slaves let alone to say remember that you have the same master in heaven treat them well that was radical it would have ruffled some feathers i'm sure some people would have turned away from the faith at that point they would have said no i'm not doing that yeah. yeah, I reckon there were a, a rich, a few rich and wealthy yeah. ones who realised they stood to lose out in the natural if they yeah. abided by this. So it, it was confronting to some, but there's plenty of stories of those who did take it on board and it did change things. Because effectively, it would have been masters, slaves serving masters at home, but then the minute they came to the congregation, they would have then been seated next to their slaves as equals. Yeah, that just didn't happen anywhere else. No. No, and Paul, and Paul would say that he, he would then imply that as best as it can, masters should be treating their slaves as equals at home as well. Yeah, they work for you, but think of it like rather than treating them like slaves who just are there, your beck and call, think of it more like what we have today. We don't have, in, in a healthy Western culture today, we don't have slaves, we have employees and they have rights and they have, yes, they, they get fed and they get provided for. We're all employees in some way. And that's closer to what Paul is aspiring. He's going, yeah, they work for you, but but treat them well. Don't just use them. Actually, treat them with dignity. Recognize them as value as valued equals. And as he would children of God. As children of God, as he says, yeah. No, far, you, yep, exactly. This to me really shows you how much of a contrast this faith would have looked like back then. It would have been a huge contrast. Yep. And it would have been divisive. These divisive? Things. Yeah. Compared to like, the world around, you mean? Like Yeah, well, to those masters who just they just wanted to be bad to yes. the slaves. Yes. They're like, no. Yeah. 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 So we can't it's so hard to read this today and and not try to see the context of it. Like we have to be able to read it differently to just reading. Oh, I'm just, I, know, I think what you're saying is we have to. No, that's okay. Well, I think what you, what I hear. Am I right in saying what I'm hearing you say is we need to we need to understand and compare it with the culture it was written in, rather than re- reading it and comparing it with our culture today. Is that what you're trying that's to say? That's exactly what I was trying to say. I was just trying to say that which yeah. we've already said. Yeah. Like, things are going around and around in my brain in the wrong way. Yeah. You're doing yes. great, Jeannie. I'm doing I know it's great. like to have COVID brain. It's very the very real thing. Yeah. Well, I, this is this version's very fluey. It's like I feel my brain going to sleep. Yeah. But okay. Anyway, we'll continue on because it's quite fun. Good. <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> and I, I enjoy making fun of myself, so that, that's you okay. <laughs> if you're still listening to this, give give me some grace, okay? Give yeah, absolutely. Grace. 
Most of us have okay. had COVID by now. We understand. Yes. Yes. We've all had it many times, but it keeps mm. changing every time. Okay. Yep. So let's go to uh, verse 10 where he says, A final word, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on all of God's armour so you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. What's God's armour? Is it that song, your, your, your breasts played on? and your, oh, It's not a song. That's actually in it, isn't it? Uh, the head of salvation. How does it go? I don't know that song, but they're all there. The head, the head of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield. It's a scriptural shield thing, yeah. Sounds like a Sunday school song or something, but yeah. Yeah, is that okay. what it is? Um, God's armor. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rattle a few feathers right here. So apologies if I, um, I do upset you. I'm trying not to. I'm just trying to let the scripture interpret the scripture. Um, and I'm, what I'm, what I'm, want to clarify is what I'm about to say is not intended to upset people who do what I am telling, what I'm about to say, um, or, or say is probably not what Paul's intending. There are people who, who would say from a prayer perspective, um, this is a very common thing in the prayer. Oh, what we do each day is we put on the armor. We pray, we pray on our armor of salvation, head of salvation. We pray on our, our breastplate of righteousness. And somehow we go through some kind of, um, ritualistic, prayer process of putting that stuff on um i'm not opposed to that concept except i think for many people it stops at that point as though the very putting on of the thing and going through the motion of i prayed on my head of righteousness that somehow then that's the end of it and i've now got my headpiece of righteousness on or now got my breastplate of righteousness my head of salvation or whatever it might be we've somehow now done our daily prayer and so we can go out into the world with our armour on. I think you've got to really stretch what Paul is saying to think that that is what he's talking about here. Now, before I move on and say what I think it really is saying, for those who do go through that process of praying on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and, and all of that, could I urge you that if you feel that's something you're called to do, as you, and some of you may do this already, but as you go through the process of doing that, be thinking about what, decisions and choices that will require you to make during the course of the day. The very fact that you've prayed on a helmet of salvation and just said, right, that's it, and move on, that's closer to magic. That's closer to um, incantations and pagan religion than it is to Christian life. What Paul is really trying to get you to do here, you'll come back, you'll see where I'm going in a moment, is he's, he's urging you to live that life. So if you're going to pray for the helmet of salvation, you need to be thinking about wh what is God expecting me to do as I go about my day? What does it look like to have the helmet of salvation on? What does it look like? Let's, let's pick a practical one. Um, the belt of, the, the belt of truth. I don't just pray on a belt of truth. How am I going to live truth today? When I'm confronted with lies or deceptions or the temptation to to um, live in a duplicitous way, if I'm a Christian and I'm wearing my belt of truth, what does it look like for me to live truthfully? Can you see where I'm going, Gee? It's like it's more than an incantation. It's a practical outworking of that. Yes. Yeah, I do see. So you're putting on all, on all God's armour. You're, what you're saying is you don't just put it on, you live your day right? You yes. live your day through the prayers with the intention of remaining truthful, uh, with living and acting in integrity, but also reminding yourself of God's promises, right? Yes, that's right. That's so, part of those prayers is to that's right. 
Yeah, I'm just trying yeah. to get away from the incantation model that's like more like a magic spell. And it, it quite frankly, it's closer to paganism than it is to Christianity. Yeah. Just going through magic prayers, don't say anything. I think it's in Jeremiah. Uh, God actually, I think it's Jeremiah, God actually rebuked them because they were coming to the house of the Lord and they were going through the motions. And it actually says something like, you come to me and you say, this is the house of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord. And then you go on and live however you want to live. And Paul's saying, and, and Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah, he's basically saying, just showing up in my presence, in my temple, and saying a few magic words, and then going away and living differently does not make you a follower of God. And so let's be careful about how we live out our life if we are, you know, inclined to do that power, that armour of God. Now let me take it a little bit further in this passage here. Let's take this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to whatever it is, basically 10 to, to uh, 20 about the armour of God, and let's put it back into its context. It's not written as a standalone verse. It's, it's written as a conclusion on everything he's just said. He, and when you start to do that, you start to see this in the relation in, in its context, which is about relationships within the body of Christ and Christian families and households. And so now he's talking about things like verse 12, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers and authorities in the unseen world. This, he's actually saying there are powers at work that want to destroy your ability to live the way I've just urged you. Spent two chapters urging you to live, or two and a half chapters, Ephesians 4, 5, and a half of 6. I've just shown you what it looks like to live a Christian life within these contexts. You have spiritual enemies out to get you. And then if you start to look at the context of each of those pieces of armor, they're actually relational, truth, gospel of peace. These are These are ways that we relate to people and so we do spiritual warfare which is what it's about it's not something abstract from relationship it's not just something that's done on our own spiritual warfare is done and is happening when we are contending for unity that's spiritual warfare all right okay can i just read this out just so if people don't if they're not going to read it at least let me read it yeah great Uh, verse 13 Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. So the song is from this bit here. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body of armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And and verse 18, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Now, you mentioned spiritual warfare. And because I'm just in the church, I know a little bit about this. But what what exactly are you talking about? Because you made a good speech then for people who know what you're talking about, for people who have no idea. Which yeah, is often myself. Okay. What do you mean? <laughs> okay, well, well I, the point I'm trying to make is I think that those that are in the church, we often think of spiritual warfare as something that is limited to the prayer room, the prayer room, or a prayer meeting, or our own prayer time, where we we wrestle in prayer um, and bring and intercede before God for people and bring God before people, and it is that. 
that is part of the mandate and the privilege of being a priest. We have a we're kingdom of priests, we're royal priests, remember? So, so we have this priestly duty of interceding on behalf of people to God and to God on behalf of uh, people and vice versa. But it's not just that. It is that and it's so much more. Spiritual warfare is that and actually desiring to conduct our lives in such a way that we live in unity, that we play out Ephesians 4, 5, and the first half of chapter 6. And so to live as a Christian, spiritually mature soldier, armor, is to live that kind of life. How you live is as important as how you conduct yourself in prayer. All right. But I also read it as like a battle of the flesh versus the spirit. Uh, You know, remind yourself that you have this truth and you have God's righteousness and you've got peace uh, in your daily life when the temptations come. You're putting on the armour so that you're able to not act in the flesh at that moment. You are yeah. prepared to to be the Christian that they just, you know, is described in the other chapters, that you've moved away from yes, the darkness. Yes, it, it is that. So that when, you, when you say act in the flesh, a lot, I find a lot of Christians... Per, deeply personalized that whole concept of act in the flesh. And they come up with this, li- they basically compare it against that list of sins that we talked about. What are those sins that we mentioned in the previous passage of scripture? That, you know, the. No, I the, can't remember. Whatever, yeah, I don't expect <laughs> yeah. you to remember. Whatever that word was, the hey, worthless. <laughs> no, just because you've got COVID, right? the worthless, <laughs> that list, the worthless deeds of evil. So, so we have this list and we go, oh, that's what it's about. I think acting in the flesh is actually much more a relational and corporate thing than we Western Christians especially give it credit for. I wonder if when we we overly personalise a lot of this stuff and it's all about me and my, um, my uh, certain behaviours as opposed to thinking through how do those behaviours actually affect other people. We can seek to not do certain behaviours because we think we shouldn't do them, but the way that we seek not to do them can actually cause harm to other people Um, because we're not really thinking about how our actions affect other people. We're only thinking about how our actions affect us. So let's talk about some of this marriage stuff or women and men relationship stuff or the purity culture that was around 15 years ago. And many of you listening to this will have probably been raised or had, you know, older ones might have had kids that were raised in purity culture. And so it was a very common thing that the man or a, guy, a teenage boy was taught certain things um, that they should or shouldn't do. Girls were taught how they should and shouldn't dress and how they, how would, they were to conduct themselves lest they cause the men to stumble. And and good guys were probably thinking, I mustn't stumble, I mustn't stumble, and I need all these rules in place because it stops me from stumbling. But I wonder if they've actually stopped to think about the fact that the way they tried not to live out in the flesh, and they patted themselves on the back because they, you know, didn't sleep with, you know, some girl or whatever. But they failed to realise that the way they've lived that out has actually caused harm to other people. It's actually harmed other girls. And I'd say, yes, don't. Don't give in to the flesh, but find ways that require you to add, don't harm other people in the process of not trying to harm yourself. 
find ways where your relation, your spiritual warfare is about how do you elevate others, not put others down in order to um, somehow live a more holy life yourself. Because in the process of doing that, you've actually become, you've actually become um, the opposite of what you're trying to be. I can't put it any okay. other way. You've become harming no, no, of I other can, people. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. Yeah, and when I think of the term flesh, I sort of, I identify it more in terms of humanity, like my the um, the sad side of humanity, rather than a lustful flesh sort of thought. Yeah, it's yeah, it's you know that humans would resort to brutal killing in, in an instant kind of thing. That's our yeah. that's the flesh to me. But yeah. perhaps that, but I can see what. It's it is a strange word in the Bible, the flesh. It is a strange word. Should... It doesn't doesn't get explanation very well. But if we run it through the filter of the lens of you, you'd be sick of me saying this on this podcast, but if we run it through the filter of Genesis two language, Genesis three language, it is the flesh is when we take from the tree for ourselves. We we go, I want that. I'm I want to live this way, and even if that is it a good intention, I want to live this way because I want to be right. We're not thinking about how taking from the tree ourselves has actually harmed other people, and we need to be thinking about fleshly life. Is when we take for ourselves, and we can take for ourselves with good intentions, completely obliviously aware, unaware of how we've actually harmed other people in that process. So, if we can be true Christians, spiritual warfare means we will live in a way that elevates the value of other people before ourselves. You hadn't really thought about it like that before, and and I thought you need to take care of each other. But if you are as a Christian that you're actively looking at how what you're doing is affecting other people, um, could be a really positive way to be a Christian. In if you're taking a step, going, did I hurt somebody in that uh, in what I said or what I didn't say? Okay, lots to think about on that. Could I suggest you read the scriptures, friends, through that very lens? You will be surprised at how much that is the Bible. <laughs> Honestly, you will be surprised at how much of the New Testament is actually urging us to do what you just said, Jeannie. Okay, well, great. Well, let's just end all the podcasts. No more. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> no, that, that's it, Jeannie. It's about how we add value and treat others with dignity. It's putting others before ourselves. That is, that's the upside-down gospel of Jesus, serving others. Mm. Saying that, it makes me excited because I think that, um, and I ended the last chapter almost the same way, there's a lot that the church has failed to do. And, um, but I think when people are actively reading the scriptures and are discovering these things and people will make more of an effort and that there yeah. could be great things for the church to come. Yeah, it, it's it's frustrating and exciting at the same time. It's frustrating because we're nowhere near where we should be, but it's exciting because, heck, don't have to try very hard to find anything to change. There's plenty of things that we can do differently. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we're hunting around going, well, we're nearly perfect. We can't find anything else to work on. There's plenty to work on. <laughs> oh, no. Well, where do we start? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, should we move on then? That's, I think that's Straight over to Philippians fun. 1. All right, so we're going to start on Philippians, Philippians 
one, three, and four, right? Okay. Yep. Can I just read you my little summary of, because um, I think it really sums up this, the letter, helps me to understand it. Go for it. Yes. All right. Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome to some very dear friends in Philippi as a response to their generosity in meeting his needs. He begins by expressing his confidence in them and then describes some of the problems he is facing in Rome. Whether he will die or not, he does not know. But if the death does come, he will rejoice in the presence of Christ. If he remains, he will continue to serve God as best he can. Paul sets Christ's humility as an example for the Philippians to follow, and they are to vigorously reject false teachings. He admonishes two quarreling sisters to make up and encourages all believers to set high ideals for themselves because God will supply all that they need in life. And the themes in these if rejoicing is evident, and if we live, we can rejoice before because God loves us. Christ died for us, and God gives us all things for this life. If we die, we can rejoice in Christ's presence forever. This letter is very different to all the other letters, I think, because it's full of joy. Right. Okay. He doesn't. He's not writing saying, "Hey, here, dear Philippians, this is great, but all these things you need to work on." Instead, he's, there's just so much. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests with joy. He has a lot of uh, good feelings for the people at this church. And it's a, a very um, affirming letter. Would you say that? Yes, I think it is. It's, it's probably the only letter Oh, with maybe the exception, I mean, there, as I said, there are three letters that were written at the same time, four letters that were written the same t- within a short period of time. This one, Philippians, Ephesians that we've just done, Colossians and the little one chapter, one Philemon, they were all written probably within a few weeks of each other. And as I said previously, I probably th- don't think it was Rome, it was probably Ephesus, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but this is different in that he's, Unlike many of his other letters, like Galatians, and especially Galatians and Corinthians and Thessalonians and different things, he's often writing to address problems. This one he's writing to say, thanks for giving me some money. <laughs> Basically, it's a thank you letter. Um, yes, he will address, when we get to chapter four, he will address a little dispute between a couple of um, sisters that aren't getting along in the church, but the predominant sense of this letter is one of uplifting gratitude, affirmation thanks that sort of thing 100 percent. and he in verse one he calls people in this version he says i'm writing to all of god's holy people in other versions it says to all of god's saints that's a strange thing to write that all people are holy that's what it's saying all people are saints yep why why is it strange well, just because you go into churches and there's the saint for this and the saint for that. But here's Paul saying, you're all saints. You're all gotcha. holy people. I think this is a huge claim that everybody in the church is holy, regardless of who they are, regardless of what their role is in the church. I think that would have been quite a statement to make and quite a statement to receive. Yeah, I, I think it might have been. I wonder, though, once again, whether or not it's more of a confrontation to us because we've been accustomed to a certain branch of Christianity over thousands of years, which has m- made us honour and esteem some of the holy saints, quote unquote, um, at a higher level. And and what we should, we should definitely honour those that have have lived the world that lived for the Lord faithfully. 
but you mentioned saint this and saint that well that's that's not the bible that's church history where we you know the catholic church has come up with this idea of certain requirements for a person to reach some kind of sainthood and yet in the scriptures in paul's time saints weren't anybody other than members of the church anybody who was following jesus part of god's family was a saint and and they were all holy this is paul speaking he knows that the church is full of people who have got stuff going on that isn't holy i mean even these two women we're going to see in chapter four that they're arguing with each other in some way or another well you don't call that holy but paul is speaking to who they are in jesus that as as part of god's family you are holy you are made right you are righteous in christ and so he's talking to who they are and i don't know whether they would have been as surprised by that as we are i think they would have been hopefully they're indoctrinated enough to know we're the holy church i mean the theme of this month we're doing is the holy church that's a group of people who come together who are holy we're holy because we are set apart the word just means set apart we're set apart for god we are his holy people I was really um, shocked by it this time around because I was thinking growing up you're always saying, oh, you're a sinner, you're a bad person, you know, you have to come and repent or in the Catholic faith you have to always go to confession. 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 Yet here I'm holy and you say, you know, the Bible wasn't written to you, it was what written for you. And if it's written for me, in this sentence here, to tell me I'm for me so that I know that I'm holy, I have to Great. say, think this is a bit much. And if I read it, if it was written to me, again, I'd say, you think it's I'm holy? You like, think I'm holy? But that's because you, you've grown up in a tradition that probably has one has emphasised one, one aspect of life over at the expense of another. And like you said, you're a sinner. Well, it is true, John. I think it's James says, you know, so he says something like, wash your hands, you sinners, he says in his letter. Well, he's, he's not pulling punches there. But what we have done is probably in some traditions have emphasised one aspect, that is that we are all sinners at the expense of another aspect, which is God's not angry with some big stick trying to whip you. He is desperately wants to come and live and dwell among you and be with you. That's his intention from the beginning of the book to the end of the book he wants to draw close and we've often been taught that you know god can't stand in the presence of sinners and it sounds all pious but the bible's full of it i mean full of the opposite of that jesus came and jesus come and hang out with sinners well how can you say on one hand god can't dwell in the presence of sinners and jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors so god's not threatened by sinners he loves sinners I think we need to bring some, restore some balance to that argument. We've we've emphasised this judgment, you know, anger aspect of God's nature. God is deeply in love with reaching all people. He desires that none should perish, but that all should repent and find find His favour. And repentance comes should come not as a some kind of fear of judgment. It should come as a deep longing that comes from a sense of feeling love despite my sin. That should be the driving force for repentance. So we, we're not repenting out of fear of judgment. We're repenting out of response to God's grace and love. Mm. I, yes. And what I was um, thinking of when I was reading this, it was that I used to think holiness was something that you would achieve when you die. 
you go, you're holy. But then I also think that the church has made holiness unachievable. Um, but then when I read it, I realize, oh, I'm actually holy now because Christ says I'm holy now because of what he did for me. That's and, right. And my whole life has been, Christianity has been made to be such a difficult thing. Like it's it's hard for you to be good enough in God's eyes, but you actually just are because yes. of his blood. Like it's so simple. but It is simple, so but we've made it complex. Yeah, that's right. And yes. we may have, I've got a feeling it was you, I probably talked about this in an earlier episode on our podcast somewhere, the difference between our, our legal standing and our physical state. Our standing is is a legal term. You are holy. You are, the Bible says you are holy. Paul says it here, but he also elsewhere says you are being made holy. So if you just think of that literally, it's like, well, which one is it, Paul? You either are or you are being made, because if you're being made, the presupposition is that you're not yet holy. But Paul would say, no, both are true. You are legally holy. You are legally made right. You've been restored to right relationship with the Father through Jesus, and that is your legal state standing, but your physical state is you keep, keep falling short of that. But the process of what we talked about before, earlier on in the episode, that little day-by-day day plotting with God is that little by little, as we mature in life, our standing, our state will rise and come closer to our standing. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's to me what that's that's how I reconcile these two apparent tensions I see between you are holy and you are being made holy. No, I get that, and I also, in my strange way of seeing it, I see it when we were talking about being awake and asleep before. Uh, while we were sl- while while we are sleeping, God is still working, still working to enable that holiness. Uh, yep. Yeah, through dreams, through just changing the situation around us. Great. Well, that's fruit of the spirit. Think about fruit. Fruit, you know, maybe I'm stretching the analogy too far now, but fruit <laughs> grows when the tree is sleeping. You know, it's not like the tree is striving to produce fruit. Yes. So, so yeah. you know, as we go about our life in relationship with God, we can expect that God is carrying on that work in our sleep, in our rest, if you like. Yeah. For sure. Yes, the only opposite thing I would say of that is, which is makes no sense, but I'll say it anyway. It's you know how they say it? <laughs> abs. <laughs> a six pack is made in winter, so you don't get a six pack when you're sleeping. You've got to get out running around. You got to anyway. get out and do it. Yeah, no, that's that's true. You've got to work out your salvation. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's another tension there. There's a sense in which we just read Psalm 127, let the Lord build your house. Don't strive and struggle. But but other places he seems to be saying, but you need to apply your faith. You need to work at your faith. And both are true. It's just that any one truth taken to an extreme becomes out of context. And there's lots of what these tensions, these apparent tensions in Scripture, we need to wrestle with those tensions. But it's when we when we recognise that they're metaphors explaining one side or another, and we put them together, we get a more holistic approach between working out and resting. And let's face it, if you're always working out and not resting your muscles, they don't grow. Your muscles grow when you work out. Your actual muscles grow when you're resting. You know that, don't you? Yes. Yes, yeah. How did we 
How did it yeah. twist well, and turn to this? Well, no, no. Let's let's just use that. Let's just use that metaphor and put it into a spiritual context. When we when we get out there and we do stuff, we stretch ourselves and and read or study or maybe prepare a Bible study for our connect group or whatever. We we stretch ourselves in some way. We might break the muscles. We might tension tension the muscles. But then it's in that. And that's what a muscle does. It, it's stretched and damaged in exercise. And then when it heals in rest, it heals stronger. And I think that's that tension. Go out there, stretch yourself, but not in your own strength. Then come back and let God build that a higher level of maturity in you. I think you need to go forward and rest. It's both. Yes. Yeah. Now back anyway, to- probably enough said on that. That was a bit of a segue, wasn't it? <laughs> I'll yes. blame you. You brought up the muscles and the exercise. Well, yeah, I did, but I, it also makes sense in verse to verse six, and I'm certain that God, who began the good work in with within you, will continue until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So the Christian is a work in progress, asleep yep. and awake, stretching, yep. not stretching. Yep, and yeah. God's doing the work. Ultimately, God. He's the one who carries it on. Okay, all right, and here. Um, you sh- uh, in verse 7, what does he mean when he says, you share with me the special favour of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news? How can how can they share with him in prison? It's just a literal reading. I think it's a figurative reading because we're going to see in a little while that Epaphroditus or Epaphras, one of the two, has uh, has shown up with a gift of provision, of food, clothing presumably, for him while he's in prison on behalf of the Philippians. And I think he's referring to that, saying, your gift is an identification with me. You are sharing with me in the good things and the challenging things that God has given to me. God knows how much I love you. So he, I think that's, I think it's metaphorically speaking about the sharing. It is right that I should feel this way as I do about you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth. So meanwhile, back in Philippi, while Paul's in prison, these guys are continuing to stand up. They're sharing with him, and they're in their own way, they're suffering persecution. Uh, Philippi, Paul was run out of town in Philippi. He, this is the first church in Europe. This is where Lydia became a Christian, the first convert in Europe. He did get a little fledgling church started there, and then he was run out of town. So there was it stands to reason that there's a degree of persecution that these Philippians are facing, and he's saying, I'm in prison and you're sharing with me because you've got your own kind of persecution as well. Are you reading something that I'm not reading because you're talking about a gift here? Are you, are you getting this from somewhere else? Um, that's mentioned that I think. I, no, no, no. I think it's actually in... Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, sorry, Philippians chapter 4. Let me find it for you. We'll probably come to it in um, a minute. I've skipped ahead. I'm putting it into context. Paul, we'll come back to it in Ephesians, uh, in thanks, Philippians 4. But, oh, because the letters are written in a round, they're not written in a linear form like we write letters, are they? These letters are well, written. Paul's just simply writing this letter to, as a letter of thank you back to the Philippians because they have sent him a gift. And it's like, you know, if someone sends you a gift, you like to write a letter of thanks after a wedding. He's actually, he's in prison. He wants them to get some feedback. Hey, you guys, this le- this this gift you sent me, it means the world to me. Thank you. And so he's using the opportunity to thank them and also to um, affirm them and teach them 
and encourage them okay. because these, these yeah. presumably these these guys um, that have just come to visit him are going to go back again. He's going, hey, don't go back empty-handed. Go back with some encouragement from me. All right, and isn't that how they start? Letters back then were started off thanks, encouragement, then a poem or a praise about God, and then it gets yeah. into the... Yeah, often that's the case. It's a standard letter writing. Not the only way, but a lot of ancient letters would do that, yes. Yeah. So should I sometimes read them back and forth like that? Read them? Because I wouldn't really know what that was talking about there. No, you should read it. In, you should read its context. So with these little New Testament letters like Paul's little letters like Philippians, Colossians, these little ones, yeah, read them in one setting, definitely, because it's not a long letter and it's written. The idea is that it would go back and it would be read out in front of the church. So you have to read it in its context. We we often do that in our own emails. We'll often, we shouldn't, but we often do put, you know, context later on in the paragraph. I don't know if you ever write an email and you think, oh, uh, you put some context down the bottom and I go, actually, I need to move that up the top so that people, people know yeah. what I'm thinking. Would have been yeah. a bit like that for Paul. Yeah, read these letters in, in their entirety. I mean, we're asking you to read three chapters out of four this week in Philippians. But, hey, throw in chapter two as well. And what I'm kind of getting to in a roundabout way is I think that these letters didn't make as much sense to me until I read the corresponding parts in Acts. So, oh, okay. Yep, do that too. <laughs> yes. So what people might not know is that uh, the context or the setting for these letters is actually described in Acts and Acts is more like a historical kind of record, right, of yep. Paul's life. So yep. we can go, we can read these letters and then we can go back and look for those moments in those chapters. Yeah, exactly. Yep, do that. Yeah, right. and that's quite easy. That's quite easy to do. Well, yep. it sounds easy, but unless you knew that, it's not easy. If you didn't, no, no, that's right. Sorry, no, you wouldn't have, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't know to do it. But if you want to, just Google, um, you know, Philippi or Philippians in the book of Acts and you'd find those scriptures and then you'd be able to go, okay, yeah, that's a good point. Because these are letters that are written different times during Paul's ministry that are referred to within the book of Acts. Yes. Okay. So I'm mentioning it now before we get in further here because this is not the first time Paul has been in prison, right? He was in prison no. in Philippi. Is that correct? Uh, yes, for one night. <laughs> one night. And there, there was a big magical moment happened. Yeah. Uh, there was a, an earthquake and an, was there an angel? There was uh, just a, well, it says an angel. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was an earthquake and an angel, angel pulled, uh, broke, broke, broke open the um, cells or something like that. Yeah. All right. And there were conversions and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, there was a family that was converted. Yep. Okay, so the people at Philippi, they saw this big miracle and they believed and they they could see that God was working in Paul's life. So would it have been hard for them to understand why Paul was in prison for such a long time and that same event hadn't, same thing hasn't uh, happened? Yeah, well. Their faith. And, and they would have been like, Paul, you're in prison. I'm sending you gifts, but why hasn't God gotten you out? Why hasn't God let you out this time? Well, that is a brilliant thought because that might be exactly why Paul says, I want you to know, he says this in chapter one somewhere, doesn't he? Um, he actually says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, I want you to know, verse 12, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, everything that's happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Wow, Jeannie, good thought. I've never thought of that. Might be why he's sending that encouragement because they, they, had, 
stated he had a supernatural deliverance from prison in Philippi. Yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> da, 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 da. Oh, brilliant. And oh, that's gold. So he he's writing them to encourage them but also to say because uh, he's, he's um, he could be put to death in a moment, right? And yes. So they would be rocked by this. Uh, yes. He's killed and then he goes on to say this very encouraging letter to them, but I pray uh, that your love will overflow more and more. Like even though they're worried about him, he's not worried about himself. He's writing this deeply encouraging letter. Your love will overflow, that you will keep growing in knowledge and understanding. I just, I didn't see the strength in this letter until I saw him captured the second time and them thinking, where's the, why is it not happened? There's no faith. Where's our faith? Where's Paul's faith? Do you know what? This is this is eye-opening to me that I've read this letter, thought I had a good handle on it, and I've never thought about it through that context of, of what the Philippians might have been feeling about Paul being in prison. Well done. That is, I've, I've got some, uh, what does Tim Mackey say? A long walk and a cup of tea to think about that one. He says something like that. Yeah, well. He's a cup of, tea, cup of tea and a long walk, he says. There's some really, there's some great thoughts there to unpack. It's a whole new revelation, Jeannie, and I've never seen it. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, well yeah. And and that that's why verse thirteen he's I think very verse thirteen he's specific and he says for everyone here including the whole palace guard knows I am in chains because of Christ. That well, it leads to this for a reason. There's a reason. It, it's a developing a theology of suffering. If if there's this shallow sense of theology that they have, which is well, you know, if you follow Jesus, that every tomb's going to be just busted open and you're always going to live free from hardship. And then they're confronted by hearing that Paul is having hardship. It, it's re, it's reconstructuring or restructuring their theology of hardship and suffering. I think that should do that for all of us because, you know, I know you've been brought up in an evangelical, you know, setting. I've been brought up in a Pentecostal setting and I have seen some of what you might say the Philippians have got here. I've been raised in areas where I've been, the, the narrative has been, well, if you, if you're really in God's will, life's going to be blessed and easy. And I've had to reprogram or be deprogrammed from some of that and realize that life isn't always easy. Sometimes hard things happen, but they happen for good reasons or God uses them and redeems them for good reasons, which is, I mean, Paul, I'm sure Paul would rather not be in prison, but he's in prison and he's able to say it's actually for good because good has come out of this. People have been, have heard the good news. People have been impacted and I'm going to, God is going to redeem, uh, redeem me redeem his redeem my hardship for his purposes yeah and verse 14 we can understand specifically i think because we have those letters what were they again ephesians philippians, philippians colossians and philemon he writes in prison at this time and here verse 14 and because of my imprisonment most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak god's message without fear we gain confidence more boldly because of what he's written, what he writes in prison. Yeah, yeah that's right. I would, if you're thinking, hey, if Paul's in prison and he can be up and he can be positive and he can be hope-filled, then maybe with my hardships and my persecution and the things that are tough in my life, maybe I can have a go at this too. Maybe I can have a go at this Christian life and, and do something good for God in the process too. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes he doesn't – he 
Christ brings us through the problems. He doesn't take us from it. He brings us through it for these yeah, reasons. Yeah, great. Okay. See, I can't, I have to, I feel like I need to go back even to Ephesians and all of that and reread them all in the Acts setting and just see yeah. what am I missing out on here? What, what yeah. What's the grandest story? Yeah. Well, if you do read them in the Acts setting, I would place, I would tr- suggest, because I've looked at both settings, the problem is when they're read with the Acts setting of Rome, um, they're read you have to assume they were written after the end of the book of Acts, not actually even the time. The, the book of Acts ends. Excuse me. No, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, but it doesn't fit. There, you have to assume that Paul was probably released from Rome and then later came back to Rome again. But if you read these as in a time in about Acts chapter, um. Well, it's when, he, it's when he's in Ephesus, when, during a time when he's in Ephesus before he goes, um, I, I can't remember what chapter it is, maybe Acts 17 or something like that. If you read this, anyway, there's a, there's a time you can read this. It'll be, no, it'll be later than that. Um, you read it when he's actually in, in Ephesus, it actually does fit. It makes sense. So I'm only saying that if you're going to read them in its context, try reading them, assuming that there's a time immediately following the big riot in Ephesus when, when Paul is dragged into the the big amphitheater in Ephesus and there's a riot, read them immediately following that. And you'll see there's some hardship and trouble that Paul's face faces there. And if you assume he's in prison there, that's when you should think about um, yeah. these letters. Okay? okay. Just just saying that. No, it's it's good because the but I also want to just think about the people like who was this church of Ephesus anyway. This church of Philippi also was Philippi. The, yeah. Uh, was the first in Europe, right? Yes, correct. The first European church. Yep. Well, okay. And interesting here, Paul and Timothy, who are also writing, they write as servants, right? Not as apostles, as servants. Yep. It's an interesting note, I thought, because he has all the right to call himself an apostle. And he does elsewhere. Does elsewhere, yeah. Yeah. It's just a different kind of relationship with these people. I think so. Well, maybe it, maybe it presumes a different kind of relationship of himself. If he's in prison, he's had you know, he's been knocked down a rung or two. He's had to wrestle with the whole concept of have I failed? Am I in prison? He's gone through that whole process himself, and he sees himself. The LT says a slave of Christ Jesus. So Paul, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. So maybe they've come to this reckon this understanding that everything they do is is in service of their Lord in a higher degree. I think the other versions say bond servants, which is that whole you know I'm. I'm bonded in slavery. So, yeah, Paul's quite comfortable with saying I'm a slave of Christ. In fact, let me just say that in his other versions too, he says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and he often says and a slave of Christ. He links it in there. So he's not that he's – he always saw himself that way. He always saw himself as as um, a servant of Christ, first and foremost. Yeah. And here he talks about sort of he's having this joy, isn't he, that while he's in prison there's this joy that people are teaching the word. And um, but even though some are teaching out of jealousy and rivalry, others are teaching out of they're preaching with about Christ with pure motives. Um, but the word is spreading, right? Yes. He uh, full of joy about that. He continues to rejoice. Whether when I mean it's an interesting statement in verse eighteen. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. And so I will rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. 
don't know how rejoicing fool I would feel in prison, but anyway, rejoicing fool, that's a new word. (laughs) (laughs) Rejoicing fool. I think he is rejoicing because his reasons for rejoicing are not anchored in his own personal circumstances. They're anchored in the gospel advancing. That's what he's about. So he doesn't even care. He says, I don't even care if people are preaching it for wrong motives. Hey, if people are meeting Jesus, I'm all for that. You know, that's what he's, his goal is that, he might win some. He says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I could win as many as possible. So I think that's why he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. And he seems to be, uh, in verse 19, thankful for their prayer as well. For I know yeah. that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus helps me, leads to my deliverance. So he, he he's, I think he's in prison and he feels the prayers, doesn't he? He's aware of the prayers of the people. Um, and that's something to think about because you just think you're, your prayers are between you and God, but I think maybe God's, uh, when you pray, your prayers are felt collectively. Does that make sense? Like yep, yep. in the church, yep. you're unwell yep. and people are praying for you. Yeah. I know people who've said to me, I felt like people have been yes. praying for me. Yes. In a, in, there is a spiritual way in which that definitely happens. How we can explain it in natural, I don't know. But uh, there is definitely a sense of collective power of prayer. It's the whole concept of incense. In the we talked about incense when we were doing the tabernacle. Prayers in, are referred to as incense that comes up before God. So there's this collective power of prayer. Your prayer, my prayer, matters. Maybe we don't think, oh, what, what does my prayer matter? But in some divine way beyond our comprehension, little old me praying for five minutes about a situation coupled with someone praying for five minutes on the other side of the world about that situation, God somehow mm, stores those prayers, uses those prayers to fulfill his purposes on the earth. Yeah, and Paul was strengthened by that. It's an interesting yes. Maybe we should do a podcast on prayer. <laughs> ah, we, we have a theme on prayer. So let's put that in the, I think our, probably our November theme is on Kingdom Life Prayer. Let's uh, Let's put that on our agenda to maybe do a, special podcast on prayer when we're talking about prayer. It just made me think of, in Revelation, the bowl, the gold bowl that's full of the believers. prayers. That's it. Yep, that's right. Okay, all right. Yep, that's the picture. That's what I mean by corporateness. There's something, I don't think it's, it's metaphorical. I don't think we could actually build a doctrine out of it and say, oh, this, but I think there's enough metaphorical explanation in Scripture to say it does happen. It's beyond our understanding how your prayer, my prayer adds together to do something greater than the sum of its parts, but it clearly does. Clearly does. Right. And here in verse 20, I'll just read a little bit of it. And I trust that my life will bring on the to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful works for Christ. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes, it's better I continue. Is he suicidal here? I think he's I think he's well past suicidal. I think the if you, if you ta- no. No, I no, actually the opposite. I, I think he's come to that realization. He probably this is once again implying this Ephesians. That this is happening in it. This is being written in prison in Ephesus. But if you piece it together with some of the stuff he says in Corinthians, I think the picture is this: Paul found himself in prison and seemed like he was hamstrung from doing the things he was called to do. 
Meanwhile, he finds out from Corinth across the other side of the Aegean that the church is in tatters, the church doesn't want him back anymore, and he's in prison, left to himself, feeling like, did I do all this for nothing? And it actually says there, he actually says, I want you to know that we despaired even of life. I think it's in 1 Corinthians somewhere. Now, if someone comes to me and says, uh, I'm despairing even of life, I would be concerned for them. So Paul has had a time where he has been very, very low and perhaps wondering if he missed it or he failed or, um, you know, somehow he missed God's purposes. And in that process, in that dungeon, he has a revelation from God which changes everything. And I think my suspect, my suspicion, that's not the word, my sus, I suspect, I'm starting to get COVID right now. I suspect that revelation is the Ephesians revelation that he gives that in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians, this grand picture of the church. I suspect that he feels like the church is a failure everywhere he is. There's bad news happening. There's troubles happening in the church. And he's thinking, oh, this is hopeless. Have I missed it? God gives him this vision of what the church should be. And in that process, he's radically transformed from hopelessness to hopefulness. And it's on the back of that that he writes three very hopeful letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And so when he says here um, that, you know, it's better for me to go, I don't think he's doing it in a, in a suicidal way, although he has been there previously. I think this is just a matter-of-fact way of going, you know what, I'm really excited about being with the Lord. And quite frankly, left to myself, I'd, I've experienced Christ. I'd rather be with him because... Um, because that's that's going to be even better than this. However, I'm going to stay here in this prison for your sakes. I think it's actually that I need to stay here um, away from Christ and, and with you for your sakes. Knowing, as he says, it's better that, I, that I, I'd love to go away, but for your sakes, not mine, for your sakes, I'm going to hang out here as long as the Lord would have me hang out here. So he's not afraid of death. That's how I read this. See, this is the version of Paul that I wish I had known. I had grown up thinking Paul was arrogant, Paul was a jerk, Paul was a bully, Paul... Yeah. It was a womanizer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he would bore people to death, you know, and they would yeah. fall off the window. Fall out the window. <laughs> and in his arrogance, he would bring them back to life. Um, and I just never never stopped to think about his character and how Christ changed him and the true human feelings that he felt because he, he doesn't, first read, he doesn't, he seems no. superhuman. And yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of the things with the word, you have to really sit and, and spend time thinking about the people, thinking about the moments and taking a sentence like that. Uh, but, what one of the, any one of those what we just read for to me living means living for Christ. Uh, I don't care if I live or die. That sort of stuff to actually think what it took to say that. What did he learn? Um, mm. There was Christ in his life, mm. uh, and and so I probably owe Paul a big apology when I meet him. <laughs> uh, look, uh, to be honest, I think we all do. I mean, Jill, Jill said the same thing. She's come to this revelation of the humanity of Paul, and I was like, you know, I I used to think of Paul as pretty brash and matter of fact. But I think through, you know, Jill challenging me to read it this way, I've seen that I've been much more willing to see a, a deep humanity in Paul, a deep, deep love for his people. Um, I know I was recording with Jeff for an upcoming podcast, and Jeff was talking about that, how Paul's just pleading with people. He just wants the best for them. He just deeply loves them and wants them to do well. 
yeah, it's very, very fatherly in that way. Yeah, and I'm also really interested in the mystery that he learns. How did he learn the mystery? How did he write these basically theology that we have today? How did he yeah. how did he do that? Um, so that's I have a lot to learn about Paul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I can recommend a superb biography, NT Wright's biography on Paul. A great place to start. I've read it. I've listened to it three times and I love it every time. And you can go and do little sections of it. So you can read about Paul in Ephesus or Paul in Athens or whatever and read it. But he, 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 works the, he works the biography chronologically. So it's a fascinating insight into the life of Paul. It's just called Paul, I think, by N.T. Wright. Okay. I think it would be good to do that because he, my, my views of him have stifled my understanding. Is that the word? Of yes, Paul? and that's very common. That's yeah. a very common thing. I think. No, no, that's actually very common. And for all the reasons we've said, I think most people who've come to Paul have come to it trying to read it through a 21st century mindset. And if you can do the opposite and you and change Paul's thinking, change, change your understanding of the way we read Paul and see him as caring rather than careless, um, and trying to move things forward rather than hold things back, it will change your understanding of of who this man really was. Mm. Yeah, and definitely from this chapter here, um, we it really shows that Paul had what I've written here. He had no object in life than to help forward Christ's interests and to love people, to encourage people to love more deeply. And uh, so, anybody who says that is worth looking at a little bit yes, more. I think absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Cultural to us now. It is countercultural, but that's that's the man Paul was. Yep. All right. Should we go to three? Chapter three. So here in, in chapter three, when he when opens in verse one, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So he's directly saying, if I live or die, right? or whatever happens to you in your life, rejoice in the Lord no matter the moment. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. That's interesting, to safeguard your faith. Always rejoice in the Lord to safeguard your faith. He's doing it once again for their benefit. I'm saying this because, not for myself, I'm saying this because I want to safeguard you. I want to care for you. Yes. But then here in verse 2, he does <laughs> typically what I would think of Paul. Go back to typical Paul. Yeah. Watch out for those dogs. <laughs> Watch out for those dogs. Yeah. Well, I actually like that. Now, it humanizes them even more to me, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Those people who do evil, look out for them. For we who worship by the Spirit of God, um, we're truly circumcised, which we know that circumcised was we're cut away from our old life. We live in our new life. Right. Yep. Yep. And the dogs were people who were saying they had to be circumcised to and live according to the law of Moses. And as we've said in previous podcasts, that's what Paul was got most riled up about was that they were saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. And he's going, yes. no, if you have that, you don't have the gospel. Yeah, that's well, why he, he's fired up about it. He goes on to say this here. He basically goes on to argue how amazingly Jewish he is. Right. And yes. then, and then he sort of he call in a way he calls himself a dog, doesn't he? Without actually using that term. He calls himself filthy, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, he calls himself what? 
filthy, <laughs> which I really oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. He often he says I'm the worst of I was the worst of sinners. Worst? He says things like yes. that. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I was a member. He 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 talks himself up uh, as a member of the Pharisees who demanded strict obedience. I was so jealous. I harshly persecuted. Uh, yet these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what yeah. Christ has done. Everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What a turn! What a turnaround this guy's had, really. This is huge. This is radical transfer. It took years, you know. We talked about him having time away, probably ten years at, in his hometown of, you know, Tarsus, as he reworked the Gospels through the new lens of the Old Testament through the Gospel lens, and so on. But this is radical for a person who was, you know, fiercely persecuting the church fiercely self-righteous to come to this point where he realizes now that all his righteousness was just worthless and that he would trade that in any day just to be known by Christ. It's it's a massive turnaround. You remember how I oddly, strangely said in one of the the chapters we've been reading about uh, people who were instantly transformed? Okay, so... Going back to that strange thing I said, yeah. This remind it comes out of this moment, or out of Paul's road to Damascus on the right. Damascus, right? And he has this moment. He sees Christ, and I have been led to believe that instantly he's this different person. Yeah. But in fact, when you go and read as what you've just said, it, it's taken even Paul ten, fourteen, how many years it is later to come to these revelations, to be a changed person. Yep. So his yep. faith is like our faith. It grows. It, it grows. It takes time. And we have to unlearn a lot. Unlearn a lot. Okay. There's a lot. There's so much that we talk about learning. I'm a, the more mature I get in my faith, the more I actually realize there's a lot I have, there's a lot I have to unlearn. I actually probably have to unlearn more than the stuff I have to learn, to be honest. <laughs> See, I, I would say... The more I learn, the less I know. The more yes, I that's read, right. The less I know. The more, the more I, re- and that's the sign of maturity. The more, the the more you get on, the more you realise how little you know. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, we become get to that point where we are, we are, you know, completely aware that uh, that we know little. Um, and that's to me is maturity. That's what I mean by unlearning. There's so much that I've just taken for granted, and I thought it was Bible. I thought it was the way I should conduct myself in life. And I've just realized it was it was based on empty philosophies. It was based on poor understanding of scripture that's just been fed and built upon. And I've got to unlearn all that in order to see the Bible a totally see the Bible through the correct lens, not through my own worldview lenses. But that's the problem. I heard NC Wright say this problem with when I put my glasses on, I mean the idea of my glasses is that I, I don't see my glasses. I'm supposed to see through my glasses. What we don't we all we all have lenses. We just don't realize that we're wearing lenses. We see through them and it changes the world around us. We need to um, recognize those lenses and take the wrong ones off. And that requires a lot of unlearning. Hmm. Yeah. And I think Paul's sort of saying what you're saying there is that he becomes righteous through faith in Christ. And it's not a a moment in Christ. It's faith in Christ. And faith is it is a learning journey. Yes. Faithfulness is, is faithfulness, which talks of ongoing, uh, outworking of being faithful. Yeah, not just a, it's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. We've made faith this one thing, the Damascus Road experience. I mean, the word even comes in a general, general language as, uh, you know, a life-changing encounter. Yes, Paul had a life-changing encounter, 
but that began the process of faithfulness. Mm. So a moment of faith, instantaneous moment of faith, followed by a life life of faithfulness. Yeah, and a life lived in faithfulness of yes. faith is a life that wants to suffer with him. Yes, know, correct. Uh, sharing in his death. Yes, yeah, so it's his faith is grow a daily step of growth. You learn more about Christ, and then eventually you do want to suffer with him. And you, I'm going on a rant on a tangent there. I will stop because that will take us a long. I know where you're going, but it's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I hear you. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so, oh, let's see, it's great here when he says in verse 12, "I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things." So yeah. There we go. Each perfection, but I press on. Yeah, this is that ongoing faithfulness thing we're talking about. Yeah, so we shouldn't just come to church, get saved and and walk away. We should have tenacity and um, you know keep going because there will be moments when we doubt, there will be moments when our faith is tested, but we should press on to that perfection for which for which Christ first possessed us. That's a really weird really weird to say to way to say it. Okay. Am I going anywhere for you now? Yeah, no, I think it's okay. So the reason we can keep going is because I will lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. So the initiator of this relationship was Jesus, not me. That's what Paul's trying to say. I spent my whole life trying to reach God by my good works and by obeying the letter of the law and all that stuff that I used to think was work was important. He says, now that's not important anymore. Now... Christ reached me in that self-righteousness and revealed himself to me. He laid hold of me. And now Paul's saying, I want to lay hold of him. I want to live a faithful life knowing that he has pulled me. He is holding me. He has saved me. Yeah. And here's a good point, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting the past. So this is that moment where we have moved from unholiness to unholiness, from old person to new person. And this is a moment, this is something that our culture right now doesn't allow us to forget our past mistakes or past beliefs because it's all there on Twitter, all the photographs, everything is there. But this is so different for the faith person because it's like boom there's a big split that is done this is now should we as christians be more um should we live that view out more because there's a lot of christians i know that sort of say oh but i i did this in my past i failed in that but should we be more um oh what's the word yeah Living that moment out, she'll be like, no, what you've done is done. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we should be not living in the past. We shouldn't be beating up on ourselves about the past. Now, some Christians just dismiss the past and completely fail to recognise. They go, oh, I've repented, but fail to recognise the damage of their actions has hurt other people. So I would say the living in the past is not dismissing that. You know, Paul was adamant that he and he spoke openly about the fact that my actions in the past caused people harm and he and he did what he could to rectify that he's not dismissing that but he's saying but because of the grace of god i am what i am and now i'm going to look forward 
He says, you know, I don't deserve this grace because I was a persecutor of the church, he says somewhere, but because of the grace of God, nonetheless, I am now this and I'm going to look forward, not in a proud or arrogant way. And I'm sure if Paul was, conf- and he would have t- had times in his life where he was confronted by people who he had harmed or families of members he had harmed, I, don't, I have no doubt that Paul would have said, I'm sorry, you know, I was wrong to do that. Um and pray with him or whatever and ask for forgiveness. He wasn't dismissive of that, but then he would go, I'm not going to let my past eat me and consume me because Christ has died to redeem me from my past. Now I'm going to live forward. Okay, so there's two ways of looking at this or discussing it. There is the past that in a true circumcision we should be severed from uh, in terms of the sins that... Consequences of sin. Okay, and holding so... Let's use a. Let's. Oh, I'm not. Even gonna, I'm not going to pick an example uh, because I might offend anybody by what example sure. I pick. But right. I will say that there are some things that uh, have happened to us, and we can sever. We should be severed from that memory and given freedom from from that. But then there are times that we need to look back in our past and say, "No, we've hurt people. We may yep. need to." rectify go apologize seek forgiveness and and heal that so yep there's a difference between sins we've committed and sins that have been committed against us i think is what you're saying and yes i think they are that's a valid way to look at it yes but but also sins that or things that we have done um people we have been that we are no longer by our own choice. It didn't necessarily hurt anybody but ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're still harming ourselves. We're harming the image. Remember I said sin is that harming of the image of God, and that can be the image of God in ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if we have harmed that, we need to move beyond that. Yeah. And there's such freedom in this, and this is what we're not getting out there. I think the church message isn't getting out there because the culture around us is so condemning. Um, but the, we are counterculture and say, hey, no, we will forgive you. You know, you need, you can become a new person. Yeah. yeah what great. Christ is saying, a new person, but our culture says, no, 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 that can't yeah. happen. No, okay. Whereas we do believe that. Yeah, we believe you can become a new person. Paul did, and that's what he's urging these Philippians to do. Well, this is huge. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new way of thinking, which is what it's supposed to be. A new yes. like the gospel is a new way of thinking. Yeah. Okay. All right. In verse twenty, I just want to point out this. Uh, I'll read it out. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting to Him. Does that mean we're citizens of heaven this side of earth, or is that something that we're going? To yes. Be? No, we are. It doesn't say we will be. We are. Paul Paul makes no difference between the two. It's present tense. Yeah, and and this language is very familiar to Philippian language because Roman uh, Philippians were Roman citizens. It was a Roman colony. So anyone born in in Philippi um, would have had some kind of Roman citizenship. And he's saying to the Philippians, you might be Philippian, you might be Roman citizens, but really you are citizens of heaven with all the privileges that that go with that and even i think from memory when it goes on it says we're eagerly awaiting for his for him to return as our savior there's a sense in which that's linked to caesar language as well that uh caesar would return to you know 
um, instigate blessings upon the Philippians or upon Roman citizens, I should say. Um, you know, Caesar would come back from battles and, and all Roman citizens would be bestowed a gift or something like that. Um, Paul is trying to balance, he's trying to show how Christ's citizenship in heaven is so much more greater than that. And for everybody, not just males or... or um, That's right. For males, all people. For all, yeah, uh, we are all citizens, yeah. There probably should be an all in there, but that's the, that's the implied. We are all citizens. Mm. Okay, I think that's a... Um, I don't think I have any more questions on that chapter. Here we are in chapter four of Philippians, and this is the um, the argument with the women, right? Uh, yep. That we, yes. So now this I chapter think- is I call it the chapter of one-liners. There are more Christian songs that I've heard in the '90s that came out of this chapter than any other area. It's full of little one-liner statements really? that Paul makes. Yeah, you'll see them as we go through. Oh, yep. you seen one? <laughs> uh, no, I can, I can, I can, I won't see one. Rejoice Why in the not? Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Oh, I say, oh, yeah, I know that one. Okay. I used to do that one in rounds, remember? Now yeah. the ladies can sing. Now the men can sing. Oh. That was that comes out of here. Oh, a lot of them did. Oh, yeah. wow. I had no idea that a lot of songs were taken directly out of Scripture, by the way. And lots of those 90s Christian ones that you would have sung straight out of Philippians 4, actually. Oh, wow. Is that that Shout to the Lord? Is that that one? It's... No, that's not out of here. But, um, yeah, oh, we, we'll, we'll see some as we go through. Okay. Yeah, don't worry about anything. There's lots of one-liners in here. Yep. Oh, yeah, I see it. <laughs> Verse 4. Okay. Yes, All right. Yeah. This is the argument for the women. Uh, yeah. These two women are having an argument here. And yep. um, is saying to both of them, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement in verse 2. And I ask you, my true partner, who's he talking? Is this what? Um, my true partner so, to help these women. So some people, some versions say Sishigus. I ask you, loyal Sishigus. Yes. yes. Um, in fact, when we recorded this last time, it's amazing how different this podcast is to the last one, but I remember you must have been reading it out of a version that said Sishigus and, and you're yes. asking me. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, obviously there's true partner, there's sister just there. I don't know. I, I've i never thought about it as any one particular person, but if it mentions sister just, I assume that's a person. Um, I'd have to do my research. I probably should have done any preparation for round two of this podcast, but I, I didn't. Um, but I imagine it must be a person in the church that must be involved with these two. That's just my assumption of what okay. it's saying. Yeah, I, I think I've always read it as the true partner being the whole church. Like, come on, all of you support these two women, but maybe it is a person. Okay. And uh, just for you listeners there, Rowan said that this is so different, and it's true. Part of the reason is I have very different notes here. <laughs> I don't know. I can't see them, but I had, I don't know what happened to my other notes. Well, part of, the other part of the reason is I don't have any notes. So yeah. what comes out of my head is just all conducive right. of what I think and at I'm the time. Sure I did have sister just, yes. Yeah. So anyway. It's quite amazing how different this is. Okay. Well, it shows the depth and richness of Scripture that, um, that, Reading you, know, that you yeah. can see it, so many different things in it. Yep. Okay. So I asked you to help these two women for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. So here's, we said before, Paul has elevated these women, but not only has he elevated these women, he's actually working with them. Is that, does working 
hard yes. with me mean working hard with me. Yeah, yeah, for they have worked hard with me. I don't know what that looks so like. So they're preaching? Well, they're, dis- they're illustrating the gospel in some way, telling others the good news. I mean, how else would you describe that than preaching about Jesus, whether that's preaching verbally, living the life, influencing the church. These women are women of influence with, who everyone knows. I mean, this is just not a couple of people on the fringes of the church. There's, there's something about these two that is they're central and well-known to the church. And it's obviously, it's, they're obviously so significant that it's causing enough tension for Paul to address it. If I'm a pastor and I've got two ladies in the church who aren't very well involved, I'm not necessarily going to address anything publicly for them. In fact, Paul might have gone to Epaphras. He might have gone, hey, when you go back, you know, these two ladies, um, you know, just talk to them privately and piece it together. But the fact that Paul has felt that it's important enough to bring to the whole church, that actually people have, people have done what you've said before and they've gone, oh, Paul, that's so sexist or whatever. I actually think that elevates these women because it, it was so significant. It was maybe causing some tension at such a level that tells me these women had influence and authority in the church in some way. How can people see that as sexist where that in other letters he's actually written about believers that he uh, casts off now? Doesn't yeah, that's he true too. Yeah, he, does, bad men? He, doesn't, he doesn't name those people. I think that's the argument is he's naming these two women. These are two oh, specific okay. that he's named. Okay. So the others it's implied, oh, yeah, that man, he says that man who slept with his stepmother or whatever it might be. Whereas here, he, he actually names these two women. But he's, he's pleading with them because he loves them and he cares for them and he wants the church to have unity. Hmm. Well, he says, whose names are written in the book of life. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty compliment, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And to these women, is he saying, no, or is he now saying to everybody, verse 4, always be full of joy. He's, now that he's addressed this part, this next part, always be full of joy is to the greater I think so. I think he's just, it's like, I picture this almost like he's writing this letter and um, he might go, oh, that's right. Epaphras told me about these, about Yodi and Syntagy. I better say something about that. You know, it's almost like it's a little addendum he puts in there because it seems to break with the context of everything else he's saying. So I think verse four, he's, he's back talking to the whole church again. Okay. And this is the song, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice, rejoice. Yeah. Yeah. Let everyone see you, consider it in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. So he's really telling people to be considerate. Like we mentioned before, think about others. Think about others. This is relational language again. Relational language. And verse 6 is one of the ones that people often um, think about, don't they? They often think about in church. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Uh, I think... A lot of people will read, don't worry about anything, and then skip over the part instead, pray about everything. And I say that because I'm a terrible prayer. I don't pray about anything, let alone everything. <laughs> I'm getting better. But anyway. I think enough. you're getting better. I think, I, I, would, I'm, I think you probably pray more than you realise. But that's, yeah, I'm not naturally a prayer intercessory kind of person either. So um, I, I do it because it's part of my job and I know it's important, but it, it doesn't come naturally like it does to some people. And here, it, when people say to you, how do you pray, what is prayer? I think the answer is right here. Tell God what you need and thank yeah. him for what he's done. Prayer is a relationship in a nutshell. Prayer is a relationship with God. Okay. But then when you're actually praying, you will experience God's peace. Yes. 
Yeah, that's right. This peace that transcends understanding. The circumstances that your mind might not understand it, but there's some kind of supernatural peace that drops into us. I've had that many times, and it's exactly this promise. Like, I shouldn't be so at peace right now because it's all going to hell in a handbasket, but but I've got this unnatural sense of peace that it's going to be okay. And that's a gift. Yeah. My peace I give you, Jesus said in the Gospel of John. My peace I leave with you. Supernatural. It's supernatural, but it's not just praying, telling God what you need, isn't it? It's spending time with God, yes. right? That's where the peace is coming as well. You're seeking his presence. You're in think his of presence. It as, think of it as a relationship. What do you do in a relationship? You spend time with people. You talk it out. You share emotion and feeling and you explain. You, you get to know one another intimately. That's what Paul is advocating for here. And it's in the doing of that that you experience this kind of peace yeah and the part the next part his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in christ jesus you can see that in in christians you can see people who are praying in dark moments and you can see that their heart is guarded uh, i've seen that i'm sure you have you're yep. the pastor and that's one of those testimonies that we should we should talk more about maybe yep yeah good yeah that's it's, great Heart, don't you think it's one of those things that makes us different yeah, that's that's a good thought. You know, when people, we, we, we spend a lot of time testifying about, oh, when person's had the breakthrough or whatever, but maybe just hearing testimonies from people who go, hey, it's still still rough right now, but I have a, I have a peace on the inside. I'm experiencing something of God's peace. That, that's a powerful testimony. Yeah, and he is really, he's really making that claim, isn't he? Because he's in prison here and then he says, but hey, I'm in prison and things are going wrong, but in verse 8, Fix your thoughts on what's true and honourable and right and pure and yep. lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy to praise. Do people do that in a good, in, in on from the mountaintop or they do it from the valley? Uh, maybe we don't do it enough anyway. No. No, I think that's what, that's what I mean by one-liners. I mean, that's a great little snippet of how to live life, isn't it? Yeah, it if is. we could, If we could do that, if we could apply that to our lives, it'd be quite transforming in the midst yeah. of hardship. Isn't this what the people are now saying? Like my watch messaged me, a phone, um, have begin your day with meditation. Think, think, <laughs> good, think Yeah, well, that's it. That part of that is that. But the difference is the object of our meditation. So in this case, Paul's saying think on true, admirable, pure, lovely, and, admir- and so on and so on. But it's Christ-centered meditation he's talking about here. He's, he's, he's not de- extracting that from He's saying those values are Christly values. There's definitely benefit in just thinking positive thoughts. Don't get me wrong. There's there's physiological benefits in our brain, neurological benefits in our brain. But what Paul's appealing to here is more than that. It's this dwelling and relationship with Christ. Remember, he's talking about prayer. So he's not separating out our thought life from our prayer life. He's saying when you center your life on Christ and center yourself on what's admirable in Christ, you will live this kind of life. Is it... Um, simple of me to read it as fix your thoughts on what is true, but I know from the Bible what is true is Christ. I know that who is honourable is Christ. I know who is right is Christ and pure and lovely, lovely, lovely and admirable is Christ and that only Christ is excellent and worthy of praise. So shouldn't I just simplify it and say fix your thoughts on Christ? Yep, which he does elsewhere. 
Um, but yes, I don't. Yeah, it's not simplifying. It's totally fine to say that. I think he's just specifically pointing out these attributes because the, each of these attributes, which are all Christly attributes, are all in and of themselves beneficial. It's like think of it like a list. He's just given a list of the armor of God in Ephesians six. Now he's giving a list of godly thinking. True, right, pure. They're all godly ways to, to conduct your life and, and dwell and think on things. Yep. And then uh, learn from his example. So we should learn from his life, what he did. He gave his life for everyone. Yep. He, he did. He loved. He was joyful in prison. Lots yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can learn from Paul. He's in prison and he's saying, hey, look at my life and live and live according to me. Use me as an example. I, I've never been game enough to say that because there's too many failings. I mean, I think Paul's come a long way to get to that point. I'd love to be able to say that, but I find myself constantly saying, look, there's some things I'll do well and there's some things I won't. And as a leader, you're following me, you're going to see some of the things I don't do well, but don't don't fail to recognize Christ. I'm doing my best. I'm going to fall short. Um, hopefully you see a few things in me that you can imitate, and I expect you'll see a few things where you go, oh, Rowan's got a long way to go there. But that's the grace of God that he's still working on me. Still working. Okay. So I ended the last couple of ones saying that the church has done, has a lot to go. Just, is that what I said, something like that? Yes, yeah, that's but, right, yeah. What you said right then, Pastor Rowan, is something I've never really heard pastors say that uh, you've done a lot and a lot of, what did you actually say <laughs> again? Quote, quote yourself again. I think what I was trying to say was, yeah, there are areas of my life that you can imitate, but there are probably areas that I'm still a work in progress that I might not even be aware of where I'm not comfortable to be able to say, hey, you can look at my life and every aspect of my life and you can imitate it. I would love to get to that point, but I'm vividly aware that I, I'm still having problems where I'm falling short. Okay. That's what I haven't heard pastors say before. And I wonder why churches haven't done that, that we put these pastors on these pedestals and then when they have what I've heard you say, a moral failure or whatever, yeah, such yeah. a crash. But if we knew that they know that they're a work in progress just yep. like us. It might yep. set the church up to be a bit more humble. And part of, that, part of that's on the pastors and part of that's on the system. I think there's some systemic issues where I heard someone say, you know, we've, the church has put these pastors on pedestals rather than the pastors putting themselves on pedestals. I think there's some truth in that too. This doesn't excuse people who have fallen, um, but it shows me that there's some systemic issues. Back to what, what are we measuring as success? We need to begin to champion vulnerability and realness. I mean, Paul is saying this when he's in prison. So he's obviously saying, you know, if you're going to follow me, be expectant that life's not always going to be easy for you. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. The church life is not easy. The Christian life is not easy. No. You know what is easy? Ending this podcast. Well, it hasn't been. <laughs> let's end it now. Let's end it now. Make that easy. Wonderful. That's well. That's a great segue into the conclusion there. Yes. So, thank you, Pastor Rowan, for talking to me. I apologise, my brain was not. No, that was good. Never we will anyway. We'll splice all that together with the Leviticus chapter. I think it was that we had from last week, and we'll put we'll we'll repost, repost. last week's podcast. And then on um, this is Friday afternoon late. And then we're going to record on Monday. Hopefully, we'll be able to record uh, next week's one and get it out. All right. Hopefully next week my brain will be back in gear. So you've we'll done well, Jeannie. I appreciate it. Uh, all, <laughs> all right, everyone. Thanks for bearing with us, and thanks, Jeannie. All right. Thanks. Catch you next time. Okay. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>